Mr. Robot Season 2, Episode 1, Unmask is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps, bringing you our first official recap of Season 2 of Mr. Robot. Very excited to be able to say those words. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler. Control is an illusion, but my co-host is very real. Antonio Mazzaro. Bonsoir, Antonio. Bonsoir, Joshua. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well in. Hello, friend. It's me. I'm Tyrell Well. Oh, really? This, you're, <laughs> you have much more, less distortion in your voice than Wellick calling from another place in time at the end of this episode. Yes, and I've given up my Swedish accent for some very obnoxious New York voice going on right now. How, how did you feel about that previous body, Wellick? I feel like you should have given that up as well. <laughs> I'm working on it. Okay, good. I'm working on it. We are working on giving you guys some Mr. Robot Season 2 coverage here on Post Show Recaps. If you are tuning in for the very first time, welcome aboard. I'm Josh. This is Antonio. Now you know who we are, and now we are all friends. Hello, friends. Hello, friends. There's yes. nothing further to know about us other than we do some podcasting here on Post Show Recaps. Uh, we talk about The Leftovers, Antonio and I. We used to podcast about Justified. Much more recently, some podcasts that go on here on Post Show Recaps involve Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead, Better Call Saul. And Antonio and I, over the past several weeks, we've been talking about Mr. Robot already. We went back. We rewatched all of season one, broke down every single episode from season one of Mr. Robot in a spoiler-free and a spoiler-filled context. Now there is nothing but spoiler-free stuff because no one knows what's coming down the pike. And here we are talking about season two of Mr. Robot, and that's incredibly exciting for me, Antonio. Yeah, it's exciting for me too, Josh. We created this perfect little daily program where we were recording about each previous episode of season one of Mr. Robot. But now, Josh, our daily program is completely out the window, and we're left sort of uh, wondering and, and not really tethered. And so this is Mr. Robot Season 2, untethered here at Post Show Recaps. I'm very excited. Neither of us are like that Kramer dude. I don't think you would want to knock each other, not knock us out if you knew us in real life. Uh, I think we're happy hope to be not. here. Yeah, hopefully not, right? Maybe, maybe you would. Uh, hopefully, if you feel that way about us, you're not listening. And you certainly aren't trying to figure out where we live. But yeah, we're, we're, we love talking about TV shows, most of them, here at Post Show Recaps. Some exceptions, The Strain, Strigoi. But, uh, but yeah, we love we love talking about Mr. Robot. We're here to talk about Mr. Robot. We had a great time recapping season one. And Josh, I'm so excited about season two of Mr. Robot. I'm so excited about this premiere. I've only watched it three or four times, so I'm really hyped. Which is pretty low for you, Antonio. By now, I figure, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday evening. By now, I would have thought like 12 times in this premiere. Yeah, I mean, give me some time, Josh. Next time, I'm going to get my sleep schedule on point, and then I'll be able to just stay up and continue to watch it on a loop before we podcast. All right, we'll work on that. We've got plenty of time between now and the next episode, but let's focus on this one. We are talking about episode one of season two unmask it's a two-part episode it's a massive episode there's so much to unpack before we do just some business to get out of the way we are going to be talking about mr robot all season long we will have a new podcast for you every single week on thursdays possibly friday mornings at the absolute latest you can subscribe to everything we're doing here on the mr robot podcast at post show recaps dot com slash mr robot itunes mr robot itunes post show recaps dot com slash mr robot itunes that would be very helpful if you want to subscribe 
subscribe, leave us some ratings, leave us some reviews, tell us what you think of what's going on with the podcast. That feedback is super, super helpful. And speaking of feedback, we are wide open to it. You can send us your questions, your comments, your anything about Mr. Robot, and we will talk about it on the air. Send that through postshowrecaps.com slash feedback. You can always hit up Antonio on Twitter at AC Mazzaro. Two Zs, one R. I'm at Round Howard. You can do all of that stuff, and that's all great ways of getting the conversation going. We really want this to be interactive with you guys. It's been really fun as we were doing Robot Road, as we called our project rewatching season one, and now we're on with the full regular season of season two. We want to make sure that everybody is along for the ride. Anything I missed, Antonio, or are you ready to start diving into this? No, you hit it good, and I'm ready to start diving into it. I'm very thankful for all the subscriptions and reviews we've had on iTunes from everybody who's been listening. Thank you very much, and very thankful for the feedback we've already received about this first episode, Josh. A lot of people, a lot of people want to talk about Elliot's perfect little routine here uh, that he's formed uh, in his, is this a new life? What's going on here? A lot of people really want us to get into that. And I think since the episode starts that way, we should really jump right in with both feet. Yeah, so let's jump in with both feet. And before we get to the present day, before we get to the modern day context of, you know, there was the whole big hack that closed out season one, uh, we don't move forward from that. We move a little bit backward when we are starting. We've been wondering what happened to Tyrell Wellick, Tyrell Wellick being one of the most important characters on the show who suddenly disappeared by the time the season one finale rolled around. Uh, We got a little bit more of a clue here in this first scene of episode one of season two. Yeah, and this is a scene that has been leaked uh, as part of the sort of promo materials for this second season. If you were following the Who is Mr. Robot and the kind of online stuff the show was doing for marketing, at some point you could have seen this scene. And it's sort of a jaw-dropper in that we know about Chekhov's popcorn gun, the gun that Darlene tried to give Elliot that Elliot wouldn't take, that he put in the popcorn machine near the end of season one. In this scene, we see Elliot not only executing the hack with help from Tyrell, But we see by the end of this scene, Tyrell is looking at the hack playing out and Elliot slowly making his way to that popcorn machine. And by the end of the scene, reaching in and grabbing for the gun. This is not a good sign for Tyrell Wellick at the beginning of this episode, Josh. Well, is he going for the gun or is he just like real hungry? Is he it possible? A little, little, little salty, <laughs> little salty sweet, or a little salty snack? Yeah, he's feeling a little salty right now. He just, you know, has his, his salt tooth is really going strong. Yeah, I don't know, but I think he's reaching for the gun. We talked a ton about how it was really great in the first season of Mr. Robot that Darlene tries to hand Elliot that gun, and he wants no part of it. And yet Elliot, as Mr. Robot, has no problem brandishing a weapon at other members of F Society, has no problem kind of menacing with a gun. So here we have Elliot as Elliot kind of reaching in there for a gun, or maybe just for some popcorn. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Uh, But it's probably the gun, and that's probably very bad for Tyrell. We're not going to know exactly what happens to Tyrell, even by the end of this episode, even though we do hear from Tyrell again. It's just a little bit of a tease, a little bit of a follow-up of what happened on that night that Tyrell suddenly vanished, uh, or at least vanished from Elliot's perspective. And I think the question that is in my mind now is, like, which version of Elliot is this in this scene? Is this full-blown Elliot? You know, this is just the regular Elliot 
Elliott, the guy that we spent most of season one, you know, looking through his vision? Or is there a little bit of the Mr. Robot going on with Elliott here? He definitely has a little bit more of an absent look to him than I can certainly remember seeing from Elliott throughout season one. Yeah, that's right. And if you'll recall, what happens after this scene is something happens. We don't know what. Elliot's gone for three days, wakes up in Tyrell's car. And the burning question that's been on Elliot's mind since then is, where is Tyrell? What happened to Tyrell? And Elliot is just sure that the Mr. Robot version of himself absolutely knows where Tyrell is. That is not clear from this scene, that Elliot is Mr. Robot. We're seeing him as Elliot, but we're seeing him, you're right, be a little more confident. He's a little more slow. His It's happening that he delivers to Tyrell is a little bit disconnected, a little bit ethereal. Uh, he's in this moment where he has executed without the other members of F Society, and we know he's probably to the point at this moment where he doesn't really remember, as baseline Elliot, what has happened in this scene. This is the big question. What did I do when I executed? So we know he's not really in the right frame of mind. And it's hard to trace Elliot on a continuum. Uh, what, what this scene great, you know, does in a great way is the transition is from the popcorn machine to the noise of broken glass and young Elliot follow, follow, falling out the window onto right. the snow. The incident. The inciting incident. That sort of maybe kind of created the whole disconnect with Mr. Robot. Gave Elliot his guilt that he still carries around with him to this day. So if we trace that continuum this is the beginning of elliot's kind of issue and that scene with the doctor's office ends on scans of elliot's brain which we know in modern day is kind of messed up kind of messed up just a little bit messed up even before we go into that tyrell you know at the scene um you know at the f society headquarters he's standing around he's observing the monopoly man mask he's like this is kind of silly why do you guys use this um but on top of that is he still doing e-corp business on the phone when he's fielding phone calls and he's saying like make sure the honeypot is still in place or he says remove the honeypot at this point is tyrell still you know in some degree of power does he still have some e-corp influence in this moment? yeah we know he's been fired i was going to ask you about this he's still acting as an eve corp guy but when you when you look at the timeline of this incident uh we know he's been fired by this point so it is highly questionable exactly what's happening in this moment uh maybe the news didn't spread to the server farm which is an outside vendor uh, and he's still acting with the authority and the heft of being the associate cto or whatever he was at that time so he is definitely still doing that business it makes very clear i think in this moment that tyrell was completely complicit in the hack by telling them to disregard Gideon Goddard's request, which we know at that point, Gideon Goddard's request was to ignore the hacked Gideon Goddard request to remove the honeypot. Uh, the actual Gideon Goddard was saying, I was hacked, put this server back as a honeypot. We got to catch these people. They're about to take the world down. Uh, Gideon was kind of putting that out there, trying to get a hold of Tyrell. We know Gideon even went into the office to find Tyrell and Tyrell was essentially already gone. So this is Tyrell being fully complicit in the hack saying, let's do this. Let's remove the honeypot. We're going to go through with this. And so this is Tyrell we're seeing being complicit in the hack and making fun of the mask. Sure. Maybe being like some members of the audience, the episode is called unmask. So anytime a mask comes up or a reference to a mask, I think it's important to flag, but I think this is clear that Tyrell was complicit in the events of the five, nine hack. 
you said Gideon Goddard so many times, and I got so sad. Oh gosh, we have. To, I mean, look. I'm not. I'm not ready. You're not ready. You're not <laughs> I'm not ready. ready. What stage not... are you at? You're at denial still. It sounds yeah, like. I'm still at denial about what happened to Gideon. We'll get into all of that. So yeah, so we leave this scene. Elliot reaches into the popcorn machine, probably to grab a gun, maybe to kill Tyrell. Who knows? We'll find out as the season goes on. I'm sure. But we cut away from that to Breaking Glass. Young Elliot has been, you know, dropped from the window. We had heard about this incident all throughout season one um certainly as early as uh episode two of season one elliot and mr robot when they're standing on the edge of the rail and he's telling him the story about my dad he accidentally pushed me it was horrible it was this it was that now we're kind of seeing that moment and is it exactly as it played out is this you know are we seeing sort of the objective view of what happened to elliot here or is this a version of those events what's your take on that yeah i mean i think that this is pretty close to objective from my opinion i think the camera in this scene is very important it is floating around almost kind of uh distracted or disjointed not necessarily taking on a point of view uh sort of a disinterested or or kind of ethereal observer not a point of view of one single character in the scene i think that's important because i think that does establish some reality to the scene that this isn't necessarily one person's point of view of what happened this is sort of a third party kind of third person overview of what was happening and we see that happen i do think that there were some questions uh we had had people ask us in fact uh, was elliot was young elliot eight-year-old elliot was he actually pushed out a window or did eight-year-old elliot jump out the window and i think this establishes pretty clearly that this was a push it was an accident uh, this is from Nikki, uh, N-I-X-1199-S, is that on Twitter. Did Dad Slater push Kid Elliot out the window, or did Elliot jump? Uh, and Nikki thought that Elliot jumped, but we made it sound in our recap as though he was pushed. I think this makes it clear that there was an accidental push. We hear Christian Slater's character, Mr. Alderson, Edward Alderson, in the background saying it was an accident. We right. see them talking in the hospital about the accident. So this does seem to be an accident. The doctor is going to want to get to the bottom of it, but this does seem to be clearly, this is, this is the inciting incident that created the kind of feelings in Elliot, the guilt in Elliot. This is Elliot's sort of guilt birth. This is what's happened. It's really amazing as the camera pans over. You know, Elliot is alone with the doctor. He needs to answer some questions that the doctor has just for Elliot. And the camera moves over to the scans of Elliot's brain, which is really the key item on Mr. Robot, is Elliot's mind. Where is his mind? It's right there. And then we transition to the present day where Elliot has established a new routine for himself. It seems like it's going really well for Elliot right now. Yeah, well, Elliot, uh, it's definitely happening. It's happening. It's going it's really happening. well. It's happening. It's going really well, Ian. Yeah, it is interesting that we transition with the song Daydream. Uh, and that is that is a song I don't think that was chosen by accident. We Few see, things are accidental other than Elliot being pushed at windows. Indeed. That's maybe one of the only accidents. Uh, sometimes there may be other accidents, but that's a big one. Uh, but yeah, few things are accidental. Daydream, clearly a chosen song choice here. Uh, we see the images of Elliot's brain sort of melded or intermingled with images that look like the front of composition notebooks. That that we see Elliot is using to journal this new existence. 
Josh, rather than go scene by scene in this new existence, which I think we can do, let's talk about it in an overview. What we have is what? We have Elliot in kind of a confined room. He is with his mother, Josh. This was one of our big loose ends that we highlighted on our preview show leading into season two. What of Elliot's mother? Is she dead? Is she alive? Is she going to be in the story? She was a very negative influence throughout season one. We saw her at the end of season one in episode 10 being more of a positive influence. So here she shows up. She's opening the doors, telling him it's time to wake up, telling him it's time for bed. He is living with his mother, Josh. Yeah, he's living with his mother, who's really, I mean, like you said, kind of a huge figure in the lore of Mr. Robot. I think that she gets overlooked because the big reveal of Elliot and Mr. Robot sharing the same body, being two different personalities inside the same guy, and Mr. Robot wearing the face of Elliot's deceased father obviously brings up massive daddy issues for this cowboy. Uh, But I think that it's really, it's important to remember that throughout season one, Elliot is seeing visions of his mother, is remembering they're at least emotionally abusive, if not borderline physically abusive Definitely physically abusive. You know, she's like grabbing him. You know, she's very terrible towards him. Yeah, burns Um, him with a cigarette at one point, I think. Is that right? I don't remember that. It's very close to that. She's pushing his arms down at the table. Uh, She's saying horrible things the night his dad died. Right. Uh, We have, Elliot has very negative memories of his mother, such that he wanted to sit on the most dangerous car of the train when they were coming home from the city in hopes that he might die rather than see his mom. So he is living with this woman now? Yeah. <laughs> so this, this is, is where this, he goes. Right. This is, this is the choice he's made. Um, you know, he's, he's gone to his mother's house. There's all sorts of stuff that he's getting himself involved in. He's hanging out with Joey Badass as Leon, who is obsessed with Seinfeld. Antonio, I feel like you and I know a couple of people that talk about Seinfeld a lot. Yes. Uh, I, I wonder if Leon might become a guest on the Poster Recap Seinfeld podcast at some point in the that future. That would be great. I think Akiva would reach out to him. Akiva Winokur is known to do that, to reach out to people associated in a small way with Seinfeld to try to get them to remark on the events of the podcast. So it seems like Joey Badass as Leon would be a natural guest for Rob Yeah, Cicernino. it feels like gettable, right? Like, yeah, he's he gettable. Feels like- <laughs> <laughs> Leon is gettable. If Leon exists at all, we'll get into that. Leon is gettable. Right. So he, you know, he's obsessed with Seinfeld. They have dinner. They have lunch every day. They meet for meals all the time. Elliot does chores. Church groups. Tw- twice a day. Church groups two times a week. Goes to the same basketball game every single day. He is, you know, again, living with his mother. He recites all of this for Krista, his therapist from season one, who when last they met at the end of episode seven of season one was on very rocky ground with Elliot confessing that he's a hacker, that he has hacked her, uh, knows about her porn activities, to put it, you know, yeah. just a, you know, a lot of stuff. <laughs> hacker, very, I barely know her. Yes, indeed. Very <laughs> personal information he knows. And so suddenly these two are speaking again, Krista making it clear that the only reason that I will meet with you is if you are open with me this time. Obviously, this is very difficult for me, given everything you confessed. And Elliot, in this conversation, is going to say about why did you go back with your mother he says better the devil you know than the devil you don't um so is that how desperate elliot alderson is here that in the wake of finding out that he is mr robot that he has put the five nine hack as it's now been called the big hack against e-corp that he put that into action is he so desperate to drive away mr robot that he has turned to his very horrible nightmare figure of a mother that seems like a very desperate guy 
But that's also taking this at face value. Yeah, that's the face value interpretation. That at some point the five nine hack happened, and in the aftermath of the five nine hack, Elliot was so upset with what was happening with Mister Robot that he retreated essentially to living with his mother and by her rules and living an analog life. No computers. He's doing that routine on a daily basis. It is an analog closed loop. He gets gets up in the morning. He goes to three meals with the same person, watches the same basketball game, does the same chores, goes to bed at night. Journals his existence, goes to church group, and goes to therapy. And that's all he's really doing. He's not accessing the internet in any way. Doesn't have a smartphone, doesn't have a laptop, doesn't have a computer, doesn't get into any of that in any way. That would be a read for what he's trying to do in order to eliminate Mr. Robot. That is what Elliot is presenting throughout the episode, that he's trying to do this to control Mr. Robot. By keeping himself away from computers, he's taking Mr. Robot's biggest weapon away from him. He is still seeing Mr. Robot in this perfect analog loop. uh, For whatever reason, I don't know. He's not taking meds, apparently, in this perfect analog loop, and we're going to get into that. Why is he not doing that if this is what's happening? Because that seems to me to be the most guaranteed way to keep Mr. Robot at bay. Medicate yourself so it doesn't happen. Elliot does not mention meds in this episode. Not meds like the opiates that he was addicted to at any point, but the kind of meds that maybe keep these crazy things out of your brain, like lithium or other things that maybe adjust your worldview such that your brain chemistry that's producing these visions will not produce them. So the pills he was very clearly not taking in season one. Yes, the pills that Darlene left to go get him that freed him up to go do the hack with Tyrell. Uh, and so that is where we left this, the series is that Darlene had recognized that Elliot needed these pills, that, that all of this was happening. We had the huge breakdown at the end of season, at the end of episode, uh, was it eight or nine? At the end of episode nine, uh, with the, well, not the end, but the graveyard scene in episode right. nine, where Darlene and Angela recognize that Elliot really needs help. Darlene retreats uh, or takes Elliot back to his apartment, says she's going to refill his meds, disappears. That's when Wellick shows up at the end of episode nine. Uh, and then we go episode 10, the hack has already happened. So we know at some point uh, this was recognized that Elliot needed these meds. You would think that if his goal was to keep Mr. Robot at bay, he'd be taking these meds. And yet, and yet, Josh, that's not part of this. Yeah, that's not part of this. There's no meds here. And I think that, you know, now is probably as good a time as any as, I mean, we are presented with Elliot taking control of his life. He is in control of the situation as much as he can. We are being told also that control is an illusion. Elliot is journaling. He keeps a, a very detailed time-stamped log of all of his activities. He writes down thoughts. He, you know, details the conversations that he has with Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot is going to shoot Elliot in the head yeah. at a certain point and uh, you know that was a scene from the trailer that uh you know the the trailer for season two i believe ends with mr robot aiming a gun at elliot and the gun going off and i always just figured that that was just like trailer trickery where it was just going to be like a bang you know like what he does to romero in season one but no he just like straight up shoots elliot in the head yeah blood on the wall like blood uh, on jackson pollock style blood on the wall he gets pollocked he looks you know he leans back up and he has a bullet hole in his head and he carries on the conversation so that's how severe the delusions are for elliot at this point and that's just taking this on face value that elliot actually is in this situation he is in this room he is living with his mother he is in this new neighborhood hanging out with a new friend named leon and meeting a new guy who he is not going to consider a friend named ray that all of these things are actually happening 
But there's also the very real possibility that these things are not happening. And yes. I think in the in the wake of this episode, you know, Mr. Robot is a great, great show. This is why it's so great to build a community around this show because there's a lot of conversation, a lot of theorizing, a lot of speculation about what is actually happening on the show, especially in the wake of season one, which ended in such a massive mind-bending way that two characters, the two biggest characters of the show, are actually the same person. Suddenly everything is extremely suspect if it wasn't already suspect. This is a show where you have to take everything with a couple of grains of salt. Salty popcorn, if you will. Yes. Uh, and one of the big things coming out of this premiere is that maybe what Elliot thinks is going on right now is not what's going on at all. Yeah, and there are there are some big big signs. And keep in mind, the first season of Mr. Robot, the, the twist was really hidden pretty much in plain sight. We saw a lot of kind of indications throughout season one. Even though they found ways to still make it jaw-dropping, and even though there are people that don't take these kind of shows in on that level, uh, there were a lot of other people who were calling that twist from the first episode. Sam Esmail, the creator, gave interviews when it was happening, basically saying, I bent over backwards to make the twist clear. I did everything I could to telegraph that. Uh, and I, if you go back and watch it, which we did in our rewatch, uh, it's fascinating once you know the twist to kind of view the series and the scenes that we have in season one uh, with that knowledge. There's no doubt that that sort of thing will be in play for season two. This is a show that does that. So it is unquestionable that people are going to watch season one, especially this very odd beginning of season one, and say, what are we being told? What are we really watching? What's being hidden in plain sight? And the lack of drugs, if he's wanting to keep Mr. Robot away, is one of the sort of weird little fallacies of Elliot's new world. Another one, of course, is that he eats three meals a day with the same person at the same restaurant every single day. That's a little odd. The same basketball game every day. The chores, the living with his mother, the way the whole arrangement is set up, it rings, I think, to other people as institutional, whether yes. it's a psychiatric institution or whether it's some sort of prison uh, or some sort of uh, kind of where he's being more closely monitored than that institution. There's a lot of that. There are other parts throughout this first episode that sort of resonate that, whether it's Gideon visiting and the way that they're sitting, looking like a prison visit, uh, whether it's Craig Robinson's role uh, as Ray showing up as kind of maybe an authority figure or maybe a therapist or something that people are reading different ways. Um, the basketball games, people are saying, well, that's what they do in in uh, in prison. They you know they play in the prison yard. They Every prison has a very serious basketball league. Everybody knows this about Yeah, Chandler. and softball, yeah. according to Arrested Development, and football, according to the <laughs> longest yard. There's no a lot touching. of sports. A lot of sports in prison, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. So what we do see this, uh, there are, you know, there are some odd things that are going on in Elliot's life that make, that make me think, and, and I have a pretty good theory about this, I think, make me think that all is not as it seems. But listen, let me say about the hiding in plain sight. I think it's very clear that all is not as it seems, and it's very clear that Elliot is purposefully not telling us the truth. As he's going through this routine, after he talks to Krista, after all of that happens and we know what he's saying to Krista, what he says to us, the very first thing he actually addresses to us, he says, hello again. Yes, I'm talking to you this time. I'm sure you wanted to hear what I told Krista back there, but I'm not ready to trust you yet. Not after what you did. You right. kept 
hide things from me, and I don't know if I can tell you secrets like before. Friends are supposed to be honest with each other, and you weren't. It's going to take a while to rebuild this relationship. Josh, I really think that Elliot is on board with what is happening with Krista. He's telling Krista what he's doing. He knows what's up, but he's lying to us about what is happening. So you think that Elliot is aware of his surroundings, and he is keeping that information from the viewer. Yes, that's what I believe is happening. I believe that something happened at the end of season one. The biggest thing for me is that the Elliot story in season one ends with a knock on the door after the hack has happened. And of course, one of our big mysteries going into this season, the question that everyone was asking themselves the entire time the show was on hiatus. Who's knocking at the door? Right. This season premiere does absolutely nothing to answer that question. At except, least not outwardly. Except not outwardly. Except it's possible that you could easily foresee a scenario where somebody knocked at the door. Whether it's Darlene, whether it's Krista, whether it's the police with regard to the Krista, Michael, Lenny, Lenny Michelson, whatever you want to call it. The flipper microchip, the flipper chip incident. Whether it's one of those things or not. Someone knocked at that door and that scenario ended with Elliot being institutionalized and Elliot sort of creating a false world around this institutionalization. One, he's being honest with Krista about when Krista asks him why your mother, that could easily be, why are you putting your mother in this story? Not why are you staying with your mother? She doesn't say, why are you staying with your mother? She just says, you know, why your mother? And so this could easily be Elliot creating what he's called a perfect little maze in the past. Uh, This world that he's building up around himself to keep others out and in this case the other that he's keeping out is us yeah no i love it i think that's great uh, i think it's interesting your read that elliot is aware of this uh i think that that's not something that i've seen a lot of people talking about that this is something that elliot would be in on and he has reason not to trust us or at least he feels he has reason not to trust us and i think it's because he feels like we knew for a longer time than he did that he and mr robot were the same guy and we violated the trust by not telling elliot yes obviously what were we gonna do <laughs> yeah how are we reaching out josh are you tweeting at elliot i'm like elliot listen to me no you can't just you know plunge your hands through a screen and shake the poor guy even though he shook us at one point yes but one of the things that's really important to remember about the show is that elliot does treat us he treats the viewer as his friend um we are a passenger along for the ride we are spectators of course but we are also people who are interacting with the story from elliot's perspective perspective and i think that that is such an awesome way to fold that into the narrative that would allow the visual nature of the show what we are seeing physically happen on the show to be you know a coat of paint over the actual reality i think that that's really built into the into the equation of mr robot and i think that it definitely seems there's a lot here that really makes it seem like elliot's perfect little loop that he has come up with here is not really what's going on to the point that mr robot is not on board with it can't even you know you know probably understands what elliot's trying to do in order to keep him at bay but he refers to this perfect little loop as our infinite loop of insanity um so mr robot who is you know obviously has a has a dog in the fight in terms of wanting to get back out there into the battle you know get his rightful place back at the head of F society really wants to start making a difference again. It behooves him to try and get Elliot to do that stuff. But I think a disgruntled, annoyed, exhausted, Mr. Robot saying this is insane says a lot. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely it does. And something is going on that is connected. And I'll tell you, we had a lot of feedback. Chris Ashley really summed up uh, a lot of the main points here about the interesting things about this theory that Elliot's reality is probably some kind of institution or prison. Uh, this is also collected on a good post on Reddit from the user Newtown underscore burnout. Uh, and Chris Ashley said that the evidence is, first, his meeting with Gideon was like a visitation, and right. that was what was going on. Two, Elliot's room has a look of a prison prison cell. Uh, the buildings that he runs by on his way home from the park all appear to have bars. Keep in mind, of course, this is my interjecting, there could be secondary meaning. A lot of buildings and a lot of neighborhoods have bars on the first floor windows. Um, Leon is a fellow That's inmate. A solid defense, by the way. Yeah. Leon is a fellow inmate that he shares his meals with every day in the same place, and he talks about a 20-year-old TV show that is in wide syndication. That's, I guess, the kind of thing that you would see on a loop. If you were institutionalized, it's the kind of thing you'd be watching on reruns every day. So people are saying the Seinfeld of it all is proof of this. Uh, Ray, uh, this is the Craig Robinson character, is some sort of prison therapist or psychologist, and the dog is a therapy dog. I think this is great information personally. If Elliot was institutionalized because of something to do with Flipper, one of the ways they might try to break through to him in therapy is to bring a dog into the mix. They right. might say, this guy really likes dogs. One of the ways you might connect with him is bring a dog into the mix. So I can absolutely see why that would be something that is very very informative for people. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, too. Uh, the Ray character is very interesting to me. You know, there's moments where maybe he comes off a little nefarious, but if you're starting to read him as a guy who is trying to coax Elliot toward the light, if he's trying to help him out, and if it is some sort of dog scenario, if Elliot is in here not because of the hack, but because he stole a guy's dog, um, you know, this could be something that's trying to pull him toward the light a little. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of, I think that that is the most likely. As I theorized at the end of our kind of preview show, my belief is that the knock on the door is related to the dog. The set, the fi season final, season, season finale, episode 10, starts with Michael, uh, Krista's old boyfriend, talking about how he's already gone to the police. He's reported Elliot to the Cybercrimes Division. He knows Elliot's name. He knows that Elliot was one of Krista's patients. One of the big unanswered questions from season one is, what did Elliot do in the first place that got him into trouble such that he had to go see Krista? And if what he did in the first place was something resembling this, hacking people, getting into people's business, getting into people's lives, whatever it was, uh, that would be essentially regression. He's off probation. He is no longer in mandated court therapy. That doesn't actually mean that he's off probation. So maybe when Krista finds out about all this stuff uh, and finds out about the flipper thing, uh, this is something that puts Elliot right back in the crosshairs of a much smaller scale law enforcement action. Not the 5-9 hack, not the F Society, but something smaller. So I like to read the Ray character as having an agenda. Uh, there's definitely that. I think well, a lot he of, clearly has an agenda. Yes, I think a lot of people are reading it as an agenda for his own personal kind of business that he needs Elliot's help with the computer. But if you read him as having a therapy agenda, I think there's some more to it. Can we say that we're friends? Talking about his family, bringing the dog into it. The dog really likes you and on and on and on. I think there's a lot to that. There's also, Josh, a lot of Easter eggs that tell us uh, in plain sight that some of this stuff is an illusion. Daydream is the song that starts off. Uh, yeah, Elliot, that tell you something. <laughs> yeah, Elliot yeah. is talking about Mr. Robot is saying control is an illusion. This whole sequence, this whole perfect analog loop, Elliot is saying is about control. And here we have Mr. Robot repeatedly saying control is an illusion. And Elliot being concerned about him saying that, underlining it in his journal. Speaking of his journal, Josh, 
there's a QR code that Elliot has drawn in the journal. If you scan that code, it goes to a GeoCities-type website for a company called Confectura Industries. Uh, the Latin word Confectura means essentially falsehood, uh, fantasy, lie, dream. Sweet, so, sweet fantasy. Yes, and that is written right on the front of the notebook. It's a Confectura Industries notebook, okay? So that is a, a, a kind of a, a major little Easter egg that's happening there. There are other Easter eggs. We'll get into the great use of Phil Collins in this episode. Sure. But the song Take Me Home by Phil Collins, Phil Collins himself has said is about a mental patient wanting to leave a mental institution. Yeah. So for a show that hides its twists in plain enough sight, I think there's a ton of evidence here that everything is not as it seems with Elliot's perfect analog loop. And that I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there is an institutional element to what's happening with Elliot. Yeah, and not for nothing, also on Hacking Robot, which is the official after show of Mr. Robot, I believe, at the very end. Yes, this was great. Rami Malek was asked to describe Elliot this season with a single word, uh, and the word was committed. Committed, Josh. Could you be more obvious, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. So, they're not, I mean, uh, this is the thing. I don't think this show really tries to hide this stuff. I think it's a much more fascinating show to take in on that level. And the reason why I think the twist will be that Elliot is in the dark on this is because that makes it an actual twist. That Elliot is actually lying to us. That he knows what's going on, but that he's misrepresenting kind of the way things are going so that we don't know what's happening. And I think the twist will be on us, not on Elliot. The twist was on Elliot in season one. For the twist to be on Elliot in season two, that strikes me as a little repetitive, and it's much better, I think, if the twist is actually on us. I like that a lot. I think that that's a really good theory. I think it's also important just to move forward with looking at the multiple possibilities. You know, I think that there's there's two general possibilities, and then one of those possibilities has a lot of specific subsections. The one, you know, obvious possibility is, let's take Elliot at his word. Let's say that Elliot has moved away. He is in this quiet new neighborhood. He is building this new life for himself. Control is in his grasp. He is trying to oust Mr. Robot. Let's talk through those scenes thinking that that perspective is possible because that's what the show is presenting, at least on the surface. I think the juicier possibility and the one that I'm hitching my wagon to, and I believe that you are as well, and I think a lot of people are, is that we are not seeing the full picture here, uh, that there is some sort of illusory thing happening here where this world that Elliot has constructed will fade away at some point and we will see what the real version of that, you know, some sort of Matrix moment, you know, some sort of Inception Eureka moment is going to come down the pike and then the possibilities within that are is elliot in on it is he not in on it is this prison is this an institution you know infinite possibilities in that infinite loop but i think that there are two general paths that we should be talking about on a parallel course yes i think that's absolutely right and so when we get into kind of what's happening elliot is journaling we see the book resurrection by tolstoy sitting on his desk this is a book that in season one episode two mr robot was quoting from uh when he was talking to Elliot right before he pushes him off a rail. Uh, he's essentially quoting right from this book. So very, this is a book that means a lot to Elliot. We talked in season one about the meanings of this. This It's really about a person uh, who did not have the worldview of how everyone was suffering and then was faced with the opportunity to learn about that worldview. And it's about how that made them feel when they really saw how people were suffering, uh, what that made them feel in terms of uh, altering their worldview. So that is happening. Uh, his mom is sort of his kind of uh, person who's instructing him what to do. Time to get up, time to go to bed.
said, etc. We talked about how Elliot's routine is going on. One of the ways we know that this is post-hack, and this is an interesting thing, I think, in terms of the illusory theory, is that we see President Obama on the television in the morning doing a live press conference, talking about the fallout from the hack. And every time Elliot is home throughout the day, Josh, Obama is on TV. President Obama is on TV, continuing, it says live in the corner still, and he's continuing on this vein in the press conference. Is President Obama now giving 12-hour press conferences, Josh? Yeah, that's the new world order, is it's just all Obama all the time, live stream. He's on Twitch, he's doing Pokemon Go, and he's oh talking gosh. about Tyrell Wellick Beauty being President. the leader of society. Yeah, pretty yes. much. Yeah, this is terrible. No, uh, I don't think that this is happening. Clearly, I think that that shows that a little bit of what we're seeing is Elliot's version of it, that how it feels to him, or what's kind of piquing his interest. I think it's very key that we're seeing that throughout his entire day, uh, and so that's part of it. The decor in this place, Josh? Very Spartan. Uh, it's very dark. There are lamps on the, the walls. Elliot's mom doesn't have much kind of in the way of uh, couches or anything. She has a very kind of old style TV. Uh, not super old, but certainly not a newer television. Uh, it looks very Fight Club to me. It looks very David Fincher. And so that, I think that stylistically is a direct connection to a lot of the influences that Sam Esmail is bringing to the show. Uh, and then we have the stuff with Leon at the diner. Yeah, we have a lot with Leon at the diner. All of that's really interesting. I think one thing that's that really fascinates me about this, you know, this whole storyline that's going on with Elliot is like even separating where he actually is, what is actually going on with him is what he is saying to Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot is saying, "Get me to a terminal." You know, I let's start. Let's you know, let's go back to this thing that we started. Let's get back into this. Um, and Elliot is saying, "If you want my attention, then tell me what I want to know. Tell me what I want to know. Tell me where Tyrell is." Um, this seems to be the only thing that Elliot is after when it comes to Mr. Robot. Otherwise, he is thrilled to ignore Mr. Robot. Uh, he is thrilled to ignore getting frequently shot in the head over and over and over again. Um, as long as he has to until Mr. Robot starts opening up about the real thing that Elliot really wants to know. This is the thing that Elliot remains hung up on is where is Tyrell? Yeah, and I, I, I don't know if this whole affair is being orchestrated by Elliot. He said this to keep Mr. Robot at bay, but Elliot seems to be saying, like, hey, listen, we'll, do, we'll play ball by your rules, but I'm not doing anything until you tell me about Wellick. So is the whole thing being orchestrated for Elliot to find this out? Fascinating thing, of course, is that Elliot knows on some level what happened with Wellick. As we saw in episode 10, when Mr. Robot password protects a file, Elliot knows what the password is. Right. So Elliot knows things that only Mr. Robot knows that aren't directly known to baseline Elliot. And yet he does not know what happened with Wellick. And it's driving him nuts, even more nuts than he already was, such that that is kind of the predominant point of his interactions with Mr. Robot. You're right. Uh, and we'll get to what happens by the end of the episode. But that is a very key thing that is driving their interactions throughout. I want to I want to before we move on from the beginning of, you know, the, the really the the kind of main part of these interactions with Elliot at the house and Elliot's daily life. What do you make of Hot Carla, the local pyro? Thankfully, her name is Hot Carla and not Hot Carol. Uh, <laughs> that's a very good thing. I'm glad for that. One of the only female characters we see in these scenes, we do see some female characters in the background of the diner, but as far as the basketball court goes, that's the only female character there. 
She's Burning, Waiting for Godot, Josh, which is one of the most heavily theorized works of fiction of all time. Yeah. Uh, people read their own interpretations into that as a rule. So what do you make of hot Carla here and her presence in the story? Elliot refers to her as his totem. Yeah, I don't have a theory about Hot Carla yet. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I was starting to think about if this, you know, theory that Elliot is somewhere other than we are being led to believe, if he is in a prison or if he's in an institution of some variety, uh, how would he be seeing this woman just like burning stuff in the corner? Well, how is he seeing any of this? Uh, so the fire, which really threw me off to begin with, doesn't really need to throw you off that much. But I don't know. Do you have a hot take on Hot Carla? A Hot Carla take? Uh, yes. I'm not sure that I do. Here's what I would say. First, the waiting for Godot part I think is interesting. We're waiting for Godot bot here. I think there is a connection. Uh, I think calling her his totem, I don't know if that's a reference to the most famous kind of pop cultural totem of the last maybe decade. That would be the movie Inception where the characters kind of occupy space within a dream or within other people's dreams. And one of the ways to know whether you're in a dream or reality is referring to your own personal totem. And when your own personal totem is there uh, you can evaluate whether or not it's accurate and if it's accurate then you're in you're in your own world and not in someone else's so that is i think a possible reference there that elliot has created a totem to let him know that he's in the world of his own creation so he has created hot carla as just a pure figment of his imagination to be sort of the baseline of whether I'm here or I'm not here. Yes, and if she's there, then I know I'm still in the world that I'm creating. And if she's gone, then I'm a little rattled and I don't really know where I'm at. I'm losing space and time. Seeing her there is a good reference point to let him know things are how they should be. I'm I'm feeling my totem uh, in Inception. One of the famous ones is a spinning top. And I think that's the the poster image from a lot of the film. Uh, That's a very memorable thing from the film Inception. I think when you get into this world creation, whether or not it's real or not real, whether or not he's lying to us or, or, or not to himself. I think the totem thing could play a role there. So I think it's part of it. I do think the waiting for Godot is a little wink and a nod because that's a, a work of fiction, as I said, that people read into so heavily that people put their own interpretations on. And I think that that's fascinating that that's the thing that's being burned. There are some other literary references throughout. There's a reference to E.E. E. Cummings. Uh, there's also references to Red Wheelbarrow that's written on the front of Eliot's comic composition book uh and those i I think both uh both red wheelbarrow and ee cummings uh are are works or or you know kind of poems if you will uh red wheelbarrows by william carlos williams that emphasize uh william hot carlos williams william hot carlos williams uh the local pyro uh that that i think emphasize form uh that creates function so that you create this kind of stylized form and from that stylized form you get and generate meaning i think the deeper meaning there could be that yeah the world that elliot's in is created by him and that the creation of the world gives it meaning i think there is something there so there are these references throughout elliot says that he sees beauty in the rules the invisible code of chaos hiding behind the menacing face of order i think there's a lot to kind of pile on to the top of that Uh, and this show is is not one that hides and strays from those literary references i mean within the first 45 minutes we've got waiting for godot we've got red wheelbarrow and we've got tolstoy so i think that that's all kind of they're all winks and nods to the fact that i think you can read more meaning into this they're encouraging you to do that we don't want to Lindelof too much about this, Josh. We don't want to get down that, sure? ro- that robot hole. I mean, what we've always. I don't mind like, getting lost. I mean, oh no, I know you don't. I think you want to get lost, lives. 
but yeah, this is, uh, I think this is, this is all kind of on the surface. The show is not hiding this thing, uh, these things. The show is making it very clear that if you're, if you're want to do, you can really interpret this thing into the ground. Uh, and I think that that's great because I think that the general idea there is that there are things worth interpreting, that this, these sorts of things are constructs that the form or the, the way that the things are constructed, give it as much meaning as what we're seeing on the screen actually happening. Uh, and that there is importance into reading into the form of what we're seeing. So I think that that's awesome. I think that this all is really kind of disorienting and great. Not at all how I expected season two of Mr. Robot to start. I don't know about you. No. <laughs> no. no. I don't know how I expected season two to start. Whether Elliot was really, you know, he was going to be the guy standing on, like, the in- interior balcony of Madam Executioner's apartment, giving the big speech about how we're at war, and he was going to be a militant Mr. Robot type. I don't know where I thought that this was going, um, but I definitely didn't feel like it was going to be this. Yeah. And I, have- I like that. I have a feeling somewhere around episode eight or nine, we're going to have a three hour podcast uh, when the twist is finally, when the curtains finally pulled back, maybe it's sooner than that, where we say, oh my gosh, when that guy seemed really angry about the basket that was scored in the basketball game, that's because he was a crazy person. That's because he was an angry person in some sort of institutionalized setting. When Leon, who expresses, I think a little, uh, a little latent or nascent hostility, he says he wants to, he would beat Kramer's ass if he was his friend. He has a weird kind of fight with somebody over just the basketball rolling off the court over to Leon's feet. Leon seems like the kind of person that if he's real, maybe has some kinds of problems that would get him institutionalized. So there is some of that there as well that I think we're going to go back on later. We're going to look into it and say, oh yeah, the the signs were all there. But as it is right now, I think it's a great way to kind of introduce this season that Elliot is trying to control Mr. Robot, whether he's been told to do that and he's been instructed to do it, Whether this is by his own construct and he's there by his own rules, I don't really know. But I think either way you read it, he's institutionalized himself. One way or the other, he's living an institutional life. Sit, you know, wake, sleep, all these things on a schedule, have the same three meals, don't do anything with the outside world, do these very limited things, seek therapy, go to groups. He's institutionalized himself, whether it's formal or informal. And I think that's the key takeaway. Yeah, whether it's, you know, actually what we are being presented with or if that's a mass for something not for nothing this episode is called unmask exactly so there is that for sure yeah all right so i'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about elliot as we go on here well let me me say one more thing one more thing uh if you do at some point take a screenshot of elliot's journal you can see very clearly on the screen the five words i am in an illusion yeah 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 yeah. well we'll post that we'll make sure we'll make sure that's in the show notes here on poster recaps you texted that to me earlier and i thought that that was amazing so the show really does i I mean, one of the things that's great about the first season of Mr. Robot, especially on the rewatch when you know that Mr. Robot and Elliot are the same guy, is there was so much there the whole time that you really could have picked apart from the get-go. And I think that that's something that the show has a lot of fun with, is bringing along the people who are in the know for the ride. And I like your idea of there being a twist on the audience later on down the line, but it does feel like this seems to be the direction we're going in. But let's just take both possibilities, just as, as 
as they're coming. Let's talk about the robot hole that we have obviously gone very far down. Did you say robot hole? The ro the robot hole. And okay. let's, and, and let's <laughs> is that B O T T H O L? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Go easy here, <laughs> Antonio. Half For half many low. people, this is the first one. We don't want them <laughs> all running away. Sorry. We have sorry. to work our way towards that. Kind I'm just of making stuff. sure I understand what page you're on, Josh. Yes. 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 You yeah. I mean, he was reading a penthouse magazine here uh, with the F Society mask on. Elliot has no interest in that, which I think is great. Uh, F Society is everywhere. They're on the TV. They're in the nudie mags, Josh. Uh, this is this is the world we live in, and Elliot has chosen in this world, or he's been forced in this world, to kind of remove himself from it. Uh, and Mr. Robot has said, it's an illusion. You don't have control. Uh, and so his he, no matter how much he removes himself, the dark part of his brain, the chaotic part of his brain is still present. Yeah, absolutely. You and I have argued about this in the past a little bit, about Mr. Robot's role in Elliot's life. Is he sometimes looking out for Elliot's best interest, or is he pure anarchy? I tend to side on the more anarchic side that Mr. Robot really is about rebellion and raging against the machine. And when he has Elliot's best interests at heart, that's because he has his own best interests at heart. Did this episode tip you closer to that, or are you still firmly in your camp that you think that he can be both things at once? I think he has been both things, but I think he's pure anger and pure chaos in this episode. I think he is more the unbridled id, if you will, that we what we have seen him be in the past uh, than I think we've really ever seen. I mean, he's shooting Elliot directly in the head. There's a reason that so many people uh, who unfortunately take their own lives shoot themselves in the head. They shoot the master. And I absolutely think that this is connected and that this is Mr. Robot at his most bare saying, you know, you can kind of remove the trappings. You can run from me. You can you can recognize that I'm part of you, and if you take all those things away at my core, uh, I'm very mad at you, and this is how I'm going to manifest. So I think this is negative robot throughout. Uh, che Guevara is throwing up in his grave, Josh. Not spinning in his grave, throwing up in his grave. Actual vomit. Actual yes, actual vomit. puke, yes. Actual vomit is going on. All right, now let's talk about some other storylines. Yes, find, let's get let, there. Let's finally move away from Elliot for a little while. We will, of course, get back to him, but let's talk about Madam Executioner. Let's talk about Susan Jacobs, character, new character played by Sandrine Holt of House of Cards fame, has been in a ton of other stuff. I believe she was briefly on Fear the Walking Dead. Strigoi, Strigoi, Strigoi. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, You're going to Strigoi your way through Fear the Walking Dead now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, we, but we see her, and, you know, she is, we're going to find out that she is one of, like, the top-level counsels uh, for E-Corp. She is a very high-level executive, is able to have a three-person meeting with just herself, the CEO, Philip Price, and the CTO, Scott Knowles. Later in the episode, here she is in her apartment in the village. She is jogging through Washington Square Park. She goes to her apartment. Her entire apartment is digitally connected. Literally everything is hooked in. It's in the walls. It's in the walls. And everything rebels. The whole system goes up against her. The water is too hot. The temperature in the, in the apartment is too cold. The TV can't be stopped. The sound system, the stereo system is out of control. Uh, and nobody is going to be able to solve this quickly because everything is built into the walls. Everything is tied together. She is going to boo-hoo have to go to her second home in Connecticut. Oh, yeah. Sad, sad deal. <laughs> sad, sad Madam Executioner is going to have to go all the way to Connecticut while she waits this thing out. And after she leaves, of course, 
everything goes immediately right back to control. And everyone who is responsible for this, it seems like it went right back to F Society and Darlene at the head of it. And what a great entrance for Darlene in season two. Just like turning around, having those badass shades on and just being like, yeah, this is perfect. This yeah. is going to be a great spot for us. So awesome. Great character entrance for Darlene. Darlene clearly has stepped up her game. We saw earlier some pranksters uh, castrating the uh, the Hancock bull, if you will. Yes. Uh, before we see Sandrine Holt, kind of the Madam Executioner running around. As she's running around, we see these trappings of the fact that society is a little different. We see a Bitcoin truck parked outside. We hear a lot of people setting up tents and parks, kind of yelling, uh, bartering for things. Uh, this is a, kind of a new economy that's happening. If you do rewatch it, you can catch a glimpse of Darlene with a newspaper half in front of her face as Madam Executioner is running through one of these parks. Her smartwatch dies basically right before she gets to her house. She presses a button to restart it. I think that's what gives F Society the access that they need uh, for the hack of her house. And they really just seem to want new headquarters. And that seems to be the real the real reason. They've targeted her because she's an F Society kind of uh, heavy hitter. Not F Society, an Evil Corp heavy hitter. Right. But yeah, but this is, they want her house. They want this like awesome a, smart house. But it's like an, it's a roving headquarters because obviously they're not going to be able to be posted up there forever. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, it's like their Airbnb, you know, like they're just it like, they're, it's like their FBNB. Yes. They're, they're in there for a little while and then they're going to move on to the next place. But this looks to be at least for right now, the new arcade. Uh, this is the this is the new F Society headquarters with Darlene at the top of the organization. You get the impression that that is more by necessity than desire. Yeah, it's a little bit of an arcade uh, because this is uh, there's been a shakeup. Some of the members of F Society, Josh, have not returned. Darlene a little angrily says they were always half in to begin with. She's referring to Romero and Trenton uh, who have not returned from season one. No word, I think, on whether we'll see them again. Mobley is back. Reliable dj mobley uh dj mobley who is the 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 love child of us in the future yes he is he is our love son uh we have reproduced at some (laughs) point uh and this is the um, mobley uh the emoji this is the guy that uh, ac mobley Mobley that is happening here so he he is still there he's still loyal he's the kind of guy that sees through darlene's bs a little bit darlene is kind of leading f society and we've got a much bigger group uh these people are are sort of a little bit anarchic and they're a little bit kind of celebrating with the bull testes and Darlene is basically saying like, hey, we're at war. We're losing this war. They're shooting us in the heads. These are the people we need to take down. This is Madam Executioner. You signed up for this. Let's go do these things. And Mobley's like, listen, you sound like George W. Bush a little bit, but why are you doing this? And Darlene's like, yeah, the speeches are BS, but it does inspire people. And Mobley asks a very important question to Darlene. Hey, where's Elliot? Yeah, have you seen Elliot? She says, that's not important. This is everything right now. I think to rewind the clock just a little bit, we see Darlene while everyone is very excitedly, you know, looking at the, you know, holding the the bull testicles as a big trophy in the room. Darlene is upstairs. Darlene, the person who was so thrilled to have a party at the end of season one. There is a party at her doorstep right now that she is not interested in having anything to do with. She gets very militant and very, um, you know, she's at the at the balcony barking orders and saying, this is Madam Executioner. They don't just call her that because it's a cool name. They call her that because she, you know, busts up anybody who comes her way, all of this stuff. But before that, she has a very quiet, vulnerable moment that only we see. Yes. And she is 
on the ground. She is crying to herself. She is looking like a disaster. She is very, very, very upset. And I think that there's a couple possible reads on that. One of the obvious ones is, this is really stressful. <laughs> you know, she's, yeah. She was never really the leader type. She was always very militant and very vocal about wanting this hack to go through. Um, you know, She was the number one cheerleader of this thing right behind Elliot slash Mr. Robot. Um, now she is suddenly at the head of it because Elliot is clearly not involved anymore. Um, and when Mobley says, have you seen Elliot lately, for her to say that's not important could very much be just like, I can't think about that right now. I have too much on my plate as the person at the head of this movement. I think that's one very clear read on the situation. Another read, if you want to go down door number two, and if you want to travel down the robot hole, and you do know what I'm saying there, Antonio. Yes, I'm clear. We're clear. If, We're you, want, if you want to go down that path then maybe Darlene knows that Elliot is imprisoned somewhere or is institutionalized somewhere, and that is adding an extra level of stress. And perhaps maybe she's even somehow involved in that institutionalization. Um, We know that Darlene and Angela watched Elliot come to the understanding that there is no ghost dad hanging out with him, Uh, that ghost dad is an illusion, that ghost dad is not real. Um, Does Darlene... You know, did she eventually react to that by being like, we, you know, I don't care how important Elliot is in this thing. I have to do something about that. I have to get him to help and I will take the reins on this. Or even if she wasn't in control of a decision like that, is she at least aware that Elliot is somewhere not really helpful for her cause right now? Yeah, I think that's a very fair question. Uh, if you'll recall in the therapy session with Krista, when Krista asks Elliot, are you, are you alone? Uh, Elliot says, Darlene comes by sometimes. Right. And, and so Darlene, it, whether Elliot is institutionalized by choice, by whatever, whatever his scenario is, whatever version of events we choose to interpret, Darlene at least knows that it's happening. She is visiting him according to what Elliot tells Krista. I mean, she so, could also just be like a figment of his imagination, like so many other things. But that could also be. But let's, let's, let's take it at face value. Yes. Yeah, and she and then so maybe Darlene is sad because she knows that being involved in this sort of thing pushes her brother too far. If you'll recall in season one, Angela at some point says to Darlene, like, this only started after you moved back. He was fine until you moved to the city. And then all of a sudden, he screwed up. So we know that whatever Darlene's tendencies are, and we have to keep in mind, Darlene is a product of the same toxic sludge that created Elliot. She was the other child in the family uh, where Evil Corp killed. Mr. Mr. Alderson, Edward Alderson, their father, the same mother that they had, um, Darlene and uh, I'm sorry, Angela or Darlene and Elliot used to do the same things uh, together. They used to kind of hide from the same things. They shared a lot. They ran away together. They did all these things. How this manifests for for Darlene is very different, I think. She does have this chaotic side where she wants to take things out. She's a malware hacker, as is talked about in season one. But she doesn't necessarily have the brain issues that Elliot does that affect her in the ways that Elliot is affected. She has this sort of personality disorder that makes her want to crash society. But it doesn't impact her in the way that it causes her to disassociate so much that she doesn't even know where she is. That's a very sad thing. Darlene is the one who looks like she's alone. 
alone. That reminded me of the scene where Elliot was alone in his apartment crying in yeah. season one, episode one. We see Darlene alone in a bathroom crying uh, in a crumpled heap, just like Elliot. So they're very similar people whose actions and, and goals are very similar, but who are different enough in the world that they have very different paths that they're on um, in terms of their ability to handle this. And I think that's a huge part of it. So I do think she probably knows. I think there's a large amount of sadness that she's on her own seemingly in all this. Some of the key players, F Society was much smaller in season one, are gone, including some of the people that she was responsible for, like Trenton. So I think that this is a really crushing thing for Darlene to kind of be twisting around on her own in this and knowing that her brother can't be part of it. Uh, and I think that, that I think that that's present here. So I think that that's really key. I think that there's really great stuff in the limited Darlene that we get here in this season one premiere, season two premiere. Um, I think that the stuff with Darlene is excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll get to what the F Society plan is in a bit, but let's go back to Elliot really quickly. We passed by this scene. Probably, with Gideon. Be- probably because, again, I'm just not we didn't ready. We want to talk about it. Yeah, now we're in the bargaining part. We can maybe talk about it, but let's talk about what it's like. No, let's talk about Gideon, who obviously we know is not going to make it out of this episode alive which is a difficult thing to say michael gill as gideon goddard has been you know that's a great great character he was a great character throughout season one is not going to survive season two's premiere very difficult stuff one of his final scenes is here with elliot he comes to elliot's perfect little loop or maybe is visiting him in jail or an institution if you are going down that robot hole there is this scene where gideon is coming by basically to ask elliot for help gideon being the guy in charge of all safe in charge or very, at least a very large player in the cybersecurity for e corp now being linked as somehow either the figurehead of f society or some major player in the hack against e corp Gideon is looking gaunt. He is looking depressed. He is looking <laughs> really, really defeated. Oh, Gideon Gauntard. Yeah, it's bad. It's very, very bad. And he's asking Elliot for help. You know, he's coming by to talk to Elliot. And Elliot at first is basically just like, it's good to see you, Gideon. Oh, yeah. And so Gideon, nice. and Gideon basically is like, I, yeah, you too. Sure. I know things didn't go so well the last time we talked. But really, I kind of just got a yara yara through this stuff, and we need to talk about me because you have to help me out. I'm in a really bad way. Yeah, and how nice is Gideon, by the way? Uh, the FBI is breathing down his neck. They think he's responsible for the hack. He says, I've cooperated, but they keep coming at me. And he still hasn't thrown Elliot under the bus. Yeah, he still hasn't. And he's coming to Elliot for one last chance, like, Please help me. Do the right thing. Clearly, you're involved in this. Can you give me something to help me out here? He's had every opportunity to have already said to the FBI, I know who's doing this. It's the guy who worked for me. But Gideon and Elliot, you know, had, or at least for Gideon, Gideon felt a closeness toward Elliot that I think Elliot at least somewhat reciprocated throughout season one. You know, there's the moment where Elliot pulls the honeypot through hacking Gideon and is like, I feel bad about this. Yeah. Gideon is clearly a good guy. You know, looking through his stuff, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He wants to protect his people. I want to protect all people. So it's really just a conflict of philosophy here. But Elliot knows that Gideon is a good dude 
dude. The audience knows that Gideon is a good guy, and you're right. I think that this is a real testament to just how good of a guy, maybe too good of a guy, that Gideon is not willing to trade Elliot in to the feds to get himself out of this situation. There's also another player in oh, yeah. the, I was about in, to say. in this scene. It's not just Elliot and Gideon talking. It's Elliot's other aspect is in the conversation as well, and starting to get pretty violent, threatening to kill uh, Gideon right here, right now, to slit his throat with this knife that Mr. Robot is using to peel his own apple. This is a very scary scene, because there is, at least at least when I watched it, there was a part of me that was like, oh god, is Elliot just going to like murder Gideon right now? Is that where we're going? Is that how Dark Season 2 is going to get? Obviously, Gideon is going to die another way, uh, but there was a moment here where I was like, very, very afraid, not just for Gideon's life, but for what Elliot was about to do and what Elliot might be capable of. Yeah, I know friend of Posha Recast, one of our great listeners, Alex Wilpon, said she yelped when this happened with Gideon. Like, this is a terrifying who did moment. She, who did she yelp? Which uh, organization? Uh, I think it was like uh, what um, Elliot's mom's uh, B&B. Yeah. The, uh, the Airbnb. Yeah, right, so. yes. This is what happened. No, this is a, a terrifying moment for sure. And you're right. This is the Mr. Robot at his kind of unbridled. He's peeling an apple. Uh, and whether or not, look, there's an apple peel on the ground in this scene. If you really want to get into the granular analysis, are you allowed to have knives in an institutional setting? How did that apple get peeled? Is the apple peel real? Is Gideon even there, Josh? If he is fully cooperating, are we to believe that this guy really wouldn't have sold Elliot out by this point? Or is this Elliot being worried because he knows Gideon is a loose end. And I think it's really hard to say. Uh, I do think if we take it at face value, we have the true Gideon Goodard saying, look, I haven't sold you out thus far, but I'm gonna and I'm really gonna have to and I'm sorry uh, I came here to hope that there was some way you could pull me out of this. Gideon is saying, somebody's been hacking my email and Mr. Robot's in the background saying, like, oh, it was, was me. me? Yeah, it was it, me. It was me. Yeah. Is that him saying? Was He says, was it me or was it you? It's hard to remember, but it was definitely one of us yeah and so this is the guilty conscience of it all uh, him standing in the background saying like oh yeah all these people at all safe got furloughed that's because of us that's because of something we did and and you know mr robot basically says you're wondering who that someone is because if it was me that means it was you could you live with yourself knowing it was you who framed gideon and so this is mr robot very directly saying not only is gideon a loose end who probably needs to be killed but you should feel really guilty about what you did to Gideon, and he's really pushing Elliot's buttons in this scene. And I think this is a, a very telling scene emotionally. It's also really an emotional scene, knowing what we now know about Gideon and where he ends. Uh, Mr. Robot did want Gideon killed. Tom Tamillo, one of our listeners, uh, Tom has uh, you know, responded to a lot of our podcasts. Tom says, what's the possibility that Elliot actually hired somebody to help murder Gideon? Maybe right. even the Craig Robinson character. Uh, Mr. Robot in this scene gestures to slit Gideon's throat. Uh, and later, Gideon shot in the neck. Um, is there any significance to this? So Elliot is Mr. Robot, Josh. Mr. Robot is saying we have to kill Gideon. Is there, is there any – did Elliot do this? I think that there is very little that you can put past Elliot at this point. So I think that at the very least – it's on the table. We'll drill down into Gideon's death scene in deeper detail later on. So let's save that stuff for there. But I think it's at least worth pondering the possibility that that happened. Oh, my gosh. 
dark. Very, very so dark. So dark. We knew this season was going to be more dark. I should say, we'll get into the death scene later. Uh, we, we called it one of the ways they could make this season more dark was vis-a-vis Gideon. Uh, here we have Gideon showing up, as you said, looking gaunt, looking sad, throwing prostrating himself josh at elliot's feet basically saying help me help you like i don't want to do this to you i need a way out though what can you do for me uh, and elliot doesn't give him anything yeah all he- we have is an apple peel all we have is an apple peel, which if all of this is an illusion, then I think you can just, you know, get away with the apple peel. And, you know, sure. Is, is it like, uh, is there some sort of Eden metaphor here? We eat in the apple here? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, an, it's an apple computer that he's left behind. No, like, I don't know. Like, you know, you could get into it. Who cares? You know, I think I think that I'm not too hung up on the apple peel. That could be real or it could be imagined. And I think that you don't have to, you know, look at that as a loose end itself. But Gideon is a loose end for Elliot as Mr. Robot is making clear here. Um, it's a it's a dark scene. It's a dangerous scene. Obviously, Elliot, Elliot makes one of those noises that I'm so fond of. He just kind of yelps. Like again, we're to yelps. He's just kind of like uh-huh, like he makes yeah. a noise. And Gideon's like, what what's going on? And Elliot's kind of backing away from the table. Uh, so this is all this is all bad. This is all really really sad and terrifying. And Gideon is kind of angry at Elliot. Of course, there are all these things going on, uh, and it's just it's really rough. And Elliot's saying, I'm not going to lie. Gideon got to me. This is in voiceover but now is when i need the regimen the most and his response to the gideon scene because a, a bullet hole does appear on elliot's head in the middle of this scene right he's he just gonna bleeding go up, again yeah he's just gonna go up and wrap his head in some gauze josh <laughs> that's what he's gonna do yes yeah he's gonna mummify himself a little bit yes elliot the, the elliot mummy returns the elliot mummy returns um i mean if this is if this is a prison like how is he what is he wrapping himself in toilet paper Something crazy, yeah, like a shirt sleeve. I don't know. Uh, Leon remarks on at one point, like, hey, what's up with that? And Elliot doesn't really entertain it. Uh, this is probably more of an institutional kind of one flew over the cuckoo's nest type setting. Uh, and that is the, the movie and the book that inspired the, the Phil Collins song. So uh, th- there could be, you know, there's some room for that in an institutional setting that there is not in a prison. But something weird is going on with Elliot's head. Uh, it's clearly a very direct and outward kind of representation of the, the very master that Elliot is trying to uh, slay the very things that Elliot slay, is trying to control. Elliot, slay. Slay, Queen, yes. yes. So that is all going on. Uh, and Elliot is basically saying, like, that's where he, he writes out the, the, the journal that ends up reading, I am, I am an in illusion. an illusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Elliot is basically saying the whole reason for the routine is to stay the same as possible until he's gone. And that's when, and when he's gone, I can finally be the real me again. And by the way, that would be the same reason if it were treatment or if it's Elliot's self-imposition. If you're in treatment, the, the way to do it would be to, to have the same routine on a daily basis until you get better. Uh, and that's kind of Elliot's self-imposed treatment. Uh, and, and throughout this, Leon continues to be a character who's just ranting about Seinfeld and the pointlessness of not only the show, but life itself. Yeah, life means nothing man yeah this is this is leon's diner observation seinfeld has made him very kind of existential it's you know not for nothing too it's great to have these seinfeld conversations taking place inside of a diner yeah oh exactly they, they probably <laughs> want the large salad uh, while, yes. they're, while they're eating here yes it's really really great but mr robot is here as well and he is continuing to get angry um he is very annoyed with elliot for not doing anything he says i'm not some tumor to be excised i am the organ that's vital to your existence and if you keep ignoring me i'm going to go from annoyed to hurt and kiddo you do not 
want to hurt my feelings. Yikes. Yeah. And this is when Elliot gets into the real mask discussion. How do I take off a mask when it stops being a mask, when it's as much a part of me as I am? We keep fighting like the world unmasked. We will find our true selves again. Maybe after wiping away the thick, grimy film of Facebook friend requests and Vine stars, we can all see the light of day. I know we haven't talked in a while. He's talking to us. Maybe you only trust me about as much as I trust you right now, but I'm going to ask you to have hope for me anyway. Just please have hope. Josh, I think this is a very different message from Elliot, asking us to have hope. Yeah. Um, the audacity. He, you know, he really, really wants – he wants us in his corner, but – he also doesn't trust us. Uh, you know, it's it's an Elliot in a very different position. It's been really interesting so far, and granted, we're only two hours into season two. But to engage with an Elliot who is aware of the severity of his condition, or at least maybe not the full extent of the severity of his condition, but knows that things are a lot worse for him than he understood at the start of season one. And even then, he knew that some stuff was not right. Um, so to, to, to hear his perspective on this, type of thing now to hear him you know one of the big touchstones in the conversation with Gideon and Mr. Robot weighing in on it is talking about Gideon as a scared animal and when a scared animal wants to get out of the corner sometimes they'll pretend like they're a big tougher animal but they're still just a scared animal underneath this feels like the scared animal side of Elliot a little bit finally having a moment of vulnerability of like please have some hope for me right now yeah and I think that that is that sort of hopelessness or that sort of plea for hope uh, it sort of permeates throughout because that's the next thing we get is Darlene's big speech uh, that is really kind of BS, but she's just asking, she's making an emotional appeal ultimately to the F Society crowd that has gathered there. And with that emotional appeal, she can affect some scenario, which we're going to get right into here. Uh, but I think that these characters making emotional appeals is, is what's happening now. They're far enough down the, ro- the robot hole, if you will. They're far enough along the, around the bend that they're really just saying, like, I need help. Like, I need hope. I need people to think that good things can happen if we just keep at it. Uh, and that's where they're at with this. And I think the truth is that Darlene and, and Elliot really never knew what the aftermath, they didn't really contemplate the true aftermath of the 5-9 hack. They wanted to do the hack. They wanted to quote unquote make society better, but they didn't really think about the consequences. And in Elliot's case, some of those consequences are very personal, whether it's with Gideon Goddard or whether it's what ultimately happened with Angela. Uh, the, the beginning of the hack created the, the downward spot that has led Angela to where she is right now, which we'll get into very shortly here. Um, and with Darlene, the F Society hackers pushed her brother away, pushed other people away, put them in a very dark position, and there's expectations on F Society now, and Evil Corp is taking advantage of this thing. We heard a person, a commentator at the Smart House earlier, when the kind of TV screen came down. He was going on and on about how this is just a plan to ultimately take over the world economy. That right. This is, you know, and this is this gets into the White Rose kind of angle of it where you know this is gonna this is the meant to bottom out uh this company people are going to snap it up uh, and then people are going to be one or two you know really rich people or groups are going to be in control of everything and democracy is going to be gone and it'll be dictatorship like this is the world we're living in now as a result of this hack that these people created so yeah they're appealing for hope they're making emotional appeals to others they're closing up ranks because this is the world we live in now and i think it's important that they that they kind of take actions 
or make efforts to show strength in the face of that. And what society does to show that strength, Josh, is got to, it's an all-timer. It's great. It's great. I mean, you're talking about hope. Now let's talk about, uh, about change I believe in, and let's talk about $5.9 million worth of change, which is what F Society is asking for out of E Corp as they are holding their banks hostage. Give us $5.9 million in the next 24 hours or your entire system is toast. Yeah, yeah, toast. We see Darlene kind of sneakily pull this off. She creates this code. She gives to Mobley on a flash drive. We see Mobley posing. Gosh, I know. What cover for him as an IT guy? That's great. Uh, Yeah, so hard. He's posing as an IT guy. I'm so proud of our son that he has such a promising career as an IT guy. Yes, me too, Josh. We really raised a good one. We did. He he hacks right in, uh, creates this sort of thing we talked about on our preview show, which is the sort of ransom hack that is, is sort of going on right now, where somebody takes your information holds it for ransom. They're threatening E-Corp with this. What little precious systems E-Corp has left, their banking systems, their day-to-day are being bricked by uh, by F-Society, and they want $5.9 million in exchange for not bricking every system they have. We immediately see this kind of great conversation among the power players at E-Corp. We see the first seasonal appearance of Philip Price, of Scott Knowles, and we see Madam Executioner come into play, and they're talking about, should we pay them, should we not? And Scott Knowles steps up to the plate josh yeah well, scott Knowles steps up to the plate but not right away i mean no. the, the conversation is like should we do this should we do this and madam executioner is like no one's going to fund us for this we're going to have to cough up this 5.9 million dollars ourselves if we want to do it frankly i think we should do it i think that we could find 5.9 million dollars between our couch cushions oh, is boy. what she says which is okay you know it's really great to start getting kind of an inside peek at how these people operate that was one of the great exchanges between terry colby immunity beast and and Angela back in season one, where she's like, what are those meetings like behind closed doors? What what do people like you talk about? How do you make the world run? And here we are getting to see a little bit of what that looks like here, kind of for the first time, other than that season one final scene of um, Philip Price and White Rose having sort of the top 1% of the top 1% meeting. But we really haven't been inside the really finer inner workings of E-Corp, outside of some Tyrell stuff as well. This really feels like you are now seeing them puff up their chests and act kind of arrogantly to protect their sinking ship and saying, you know what, that's really you know a small drop in the bucket is $5.9 million. Especially in these times, that's a crazy thing. And something that they could only say behind closed doors, that they would be willing to essentially, figuratively burn $5.9 million dollars for this cause we do not negotiate with terrorists well i guess e-corp does it would be so bad if anybody in the world found out that e-corp anyone involved in e-corp would be willing to just torch 5.9 million dollars yeah i mean it's true and yet and it's the optics of it are very bad at this time the five nine hack has happened these horrible things have happened and here we have and that five nine million obviously i was gonna say yeah the symbolic amount of five not 5.9 million tied directly into that and just to, just to clarify for people who maybe don't understand why it's been called the 5-9 hack, is the hack took place on May 9th. Yeah, took place on May 9th, which, by the way, was the date of birth of Edward Alderson. This was voted by viewers of Hacking Robot last night as the number one Easter egg in season one. So there is a direct connection there. Uh, we are confirming that here. So the $5.9 million is tied into that. Uh, and this optics of it is really bad. I think Philip Price knows that. Scott Knowles know that, knows that. I think Madam Executioner, Mrs. Jacob, Ms. Jacobs, is, is of the other opinion. Like, let's just pay it. I got to say it, referencing again this New York Magazine article we've talked 
talked about on our Mr. Robot podcast here that talks about what a real cyber terrorist attack would look like. Corporations that have encountered these ransoms have just paid them. Right. Uh, this is something that has happened throughout uh, over the last couple of years, and corporations and people have just been paying them. So this is ultimately what's happening is somebody's paying them, and Evil Corp doesn't want to be seen paying them, but is going to do it. And Scott Knowles steps up and says, I'll do it. I'll go to the park here. Is it Gramercy Park, right? Or it's, Battery Park? It's Battery City Park. Battery City Park. I'm, I'm going to pay the money. He shows up with two big bags. What could go wrong, Josh? What could go wrong, indeed? And that's the other thing, too, is like it's got to be one of your chiefs. That's, yes. their, that's their phrasing, uh, which they interpret as, all right, it's got to be a chief executive. Yeah. Uh, and so Noel says, I'll do it. Uh, if, if we're going to give in to these bastards, I want to be the one that faces them. Before we really break down what happens here with Scott Knowles, let's take just a moment to appreciate Scott Knowles, who Antonio and I both came to the realization, for me, it was thanks to my wife, Emily Fox, who is a huge, huge fan of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And Antonio, I'm not sure how it dawned upon you, but Scott Knowles is uh, Hillary's late fiancé, Trevor, from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Hillary Banks, will you marry me? Wish we had known that earlier <laughs> and yes. put that together because that's incredible. Yeah, it is great. And uh, listen, listen, he really I, – I looked it up because I was like, oh, man, this guy, he's such a jerk. Where, where have I seen this guy? Have I seen this guy before? Like, why hasn't this guy worked more? And then I looked into his IMDb. I was like, Fresh Prince. And then I was like, oh, snap. So here we are. Here and we speaking are. of snap, yeah, parachutes that don't open. Fresh, Fresh Prince spoilers, Josh. <laughs> I thought that we were done with the spoilers section oh no oh no the spoiler section has returned to give you all of the fresh prince spoilers but the other thing that's great about scott knowles or great is probably the wrong word but that's interesting about scott knowles is scott knowles is no more than a month or so removed from the tragic murder of his wife yeah his wife was killed the number one suspect on the board for the killing is mia no one knows where tyrell wellick is scott knowles is the guy who steps up for the job here and says, if we're going to do this, I want to be the one that faces these bastards. Scott Knowles unhinged, I feel like. I mean, we talked about Tyrell Wellick losing his cool throughout season one, and Scott Knowles really one-upping Tyrell in that confrontation in the boardroom where he's, you know, like, do you want to see uh, how, how much I can pee? I just had a lot of water. Uh, we can fly my brother up. He's got the bladder of a five-year-old. You know, we saw, we've seen Scott Knowles puff up his chest before. But yes, this to and, me, and his bladder. And his bladder. But this is, this is a Scott Knowles who has every reason in the world to be very, very broken right now. His wife is dead. Her killer is at large. And his livelihood, the company that he is deeply, deeply, deeply invested in and has put so much of himself inside of is on the verge of collapse and they are being threatened on the reg by F Society. And he's the one who wants to go out there and face them. What kind of place is Scott Knowles in right now? He's a really – he's a character that I hadn't given a ton of thought going into season uh, two about. But he's somebody that I'm really very intrigued by right now, especially because, as I'm sure you will want to narrate this scene, this scene that follows, to me – and we say this a lot about a lot of scenes on Mr. Roa because there are so many of them, but this just feels like an all-timer, this scene. 
Unquestionably an all-timer, uh, no doubt about it. And yeah, Scott Knowles is 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 kind of in a dark place, but sort of in an edgy, nothing to lose kind of place. Right. So that's a big part of it. He was already a dick, like a dick and a half, as we yes. talk, as you're talking about with the bladder and with everything. I think at one point Wellick says, "How do you live with this guy?" Uh, he's just he he makes the he he really belittles Wellick with the watch right. and talking about his mortgage. He's been a dick since since jump. I mean, I think you kind of almost have to be to be the kind of guy that wants to occupy the space he wants to occupy in the world and yet he's had this tragedy and his kind of response to this is i'll take the money i'll do it little did he know what that was going to mean because he ends up in this battery city park uh we see i believe the uh the the the, uh freedom tower the new world trade center tower in the background there i'm like 99 percent certain that's the building he's looking around very on edge We have great kind of natural sound in this scene. We hear just kind of music coming from a radio somewhere. uh, And we see this kind of man sort of shuffling around with a dog. Scott Knowles is really on edge. He has people on the periphery. He's been told, don't involve the authorities. But he has some kind of security there with him. He's on an earpiece. He's telling them kind of stay away. A bike messenger rolls up, Josh. And a bike messenger delivers a bag, which Scott Knowles immediately looks into. I'm not opening that bag. I'm not opening that bag either, but Scott Knowles, nothing to lose, opening that bag. Yeah, opens the bag. He looks in. Uh, we see, we now are hearing that the music that is playing is Phil Collins' uh, Take Me Home. It's slowly getting louder in the background. What's in the bag? He pulls out an F-Society Monopoly masks, a mask. Something is taped to it. He rips the tape off. He's holding something in his other hand. Uh, he's reading something on the mask. His cell phone rings. It says, you have 10 seconds, or so we're breaking every account. He immediately puts the mask on Josh, pours the money out of both bags, takes the other thing that was in his hand, which is apparently lighter fluid, douses the money, and goes hashtag full joker. (laughs) Yeah. Some people just want to watch the world burn. Yeah. F Society just wants to watch the world via $5.9 million burning. Scott Knowles, a chief of Evil Corp, wearing an F Society mask, literally setting fire to cash, which, by the way, is in seriously high demand. High demand. in, In this economy because of what's happened with the consumer debt industry and with evil corp and here talk about optics this is about as bad as optics can get they're literally setting fire to cash money in the middle of battery city park with the freedom tower in the background and the scene is shot so you can see flames sort of licking up the freedom tower too soon never forget very evocative very evocative bad things are happening the phil collins is blaring this is such an incredible scene It's an incredible scene, and Scott Knowles, what are you doing taking that mask off when everybody is filming? Leave it on, man. Leave it on. on. Plausible deniability. We still haven't figured out if it was Elliot or Tyrell Willock wearing the Monopoly Man mask in the season one finale. No one would know. Keep that on. And there's nothing in the instructions about take the mask off. You just did it. No, he's so horrified that he's sort of like a, just kind of looking down upon his works uh, and just looking down with horror. And this is incredible. It's an incredible scene. And of course, Josh, Darlene is standing in the crowd, just kind of quietly observing. She, that's just amazing. This is a big victory for F Society. You talk about optical win. You talk about something that uh, the public is going to take notice of. This is about as viral as you can get. We see people filming it. No doubt, this is a major blow, a body blow uh, against Evil Corp. They've already been made majorly rocked by F Society. And this is another major punch. The optics are huge. And we see later in the episode, Evil Corp's in a bad way. Evil Corp's in a bad way, and the optics are huge, and it's definitely a blow. But 
not for nothing, someone who's very close to Darlene is also going to be pretty decent at defending this. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. I mean, there's not a ton, I don't think, to really drill down into, into this scene other than it's incredibly crafted. It is, you know, it's just so beautifully shot, beautifully edited, beautifully written. You know, just the, the mounting tension of yes. this scene. The sound editing. Ph- phenomenal acting, just like the look of horror on Scott Knowles' face when he realizes what he's done. Uh, it's just, yeah. it's incredibly done. And I do think that what what I like the most about it, just in sort of the macro view, is I think that this is a testament to where Mr. Robot is very likely going here in season two. We talked about this a little bit when we did our recap of the season one finale, that it feels like a different show, that it feels kind of post-apocalyptic. It feels like it does not feel like the world we had been living in in the previous nine episodes, or at the very least that everybody in the world had now suddenly woken up to the fact that this is the world we live in. And that fundamentally changes the world. Now we're starting to see how that plays in the context of season two. This is the type of thing that I feel like we can expect to see a whole lot more of. So it's a big tone setter for me, which is crucial, which is really, really key. They, and they strike the tone, as you said, with these incredibly written, incredibly shot, incredibly acted. The sound mix uh, is just so beautiful where the music kind of builds. Uh, there is no kind of underscored sound. There's no, there's no score. Uh, it's just a, a nat sound soundtrack that becomes kind of overlaid on the scene as the tension builds and as it gets more sort of artistic in the way the shots are delivered with Scott Knowles kind of hanging the mask down and we see the mask. At, and, you know, We see what's written on it. Uh, wear me and burn the money. Very simple message. Uh, Scott Knowles horror like this just all plays out so gorgeous and we do see the next scene the immediate impact which is that E-Corp is having a very hard time getting the government to bail them out. The optics on it are bad. The president's never going to be able to get Congress to bail them out. They've burned through $900 million in a month. They need immediate results, but they're trying this very long process of rebuilding their entire user base. Uh, Philip Price is saying, maybe we should sell some T-bills to China, which I got to think White Rose's ears and uh, fingertips uh, pointed, probably picked up or perked up when uh, Philip Price mentioned that. Uh, so all these things, this is a very bad scene immediately in the aftermath. We see Philip Price having a really hard time. Now he's bossing the bureaucrats around. Don't get me wrong, but these bureaucrats are saying like, look, we can't help. Uh, and Philip Price tells this great story about FDR. Yeah, he does where he's like, you know, uh, back during, you know, the big depression, we kind of figured our way out of that by lying to everybody. Uh, so, you know, we really just basically, we just have to con everyone. So, you know, we can't con everyone everybody without some confidence. Yes, and they want him to resign. They're saying, for optics, you have to back out. And he's basically saying, that won't inspire any confidence. Yeah, that's not good. And that's the best you guys could come up with? Wipe your yeah. damn mouth. Wipe your mouth off, sir. How dare you? Wipe your yeah. mouth off. That's such a great little character note and a great moment where this guy, this is bureaucrat of the stuffed shirt, if you will, he's probably some kind of ranking undersecretary on some committee or something. Uh, Philip Price is just totally bossing him around like a parent uh, and telling them they don't get it, that you have to, to in order to pl- pull off the kind you have to inspire confidence me resigning that's not any confidence uh and you guys should be the ones resigning probably you're not inspiring any confidence with your behavior i think philip
Caleb Price's bark is a little bit worse than his bite in this scene because I think we've seen him be a little rattled in the scene with a white rose. I think he's a little rattled in the scene about the $5.9 million. I think that uh, Madam Executioner is a lot more confident in that scene. So I think this is a, this is a little bit of a, I don't know, like a shaky, a shaky ship here for Philip Price. I think the seas are rough and he's not exactly handling it. He's trying to project that he's handling it, but things are coming at scared him from animal. all sides. He's a scared animal. That's exactly right. Scared and animal. I think he's, I think people are seeing a little bit behind his mask. I think he puts this mask on. I think of this very kind of outwardly controlling, very much in control kind of guy. We wondered in episode 10 how he could be so confident, but when we peek behind the mask a little bit, we see that it is really a lot of a put on. And he's saying like, listen, if I can't do the put on, we're in trouble. I have to be able to do the put on and you're not helping me. I need to do the put on. Let's work on this. So he's not exactly in the best shape. He does have a good team. We're about to talk about his team, but I think that, I think that there are some, uh, there's some trouble ahead for Philip Price for certain. These are rough waters. All right. So after we wipe our damn mouths, we are going to have to pick our jaws up off the ground because we have a Joanna Wellick scene. Uh, we will talk about Joanna Wellick in greater detail. Just let's pull all the Joanna Wellick scenes together in one shot when we get to the big kind of mystery box, literally surrounding her character in a little while. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, before that, how about we meet a new character? Yeah, let's do it. This is an FBI agent played by Grace Gummer. Uh, she, we don't know immediately that she's an FBI agent. We see her speaking Farsi to someone in a deli. We see a cameo. She by, likes turkey sandwiches. She likes turkey sandwiches. We see a cameo by a famous hacker behind her in line, uh, one of the founders of Anonymous, I believe, which not so anonymous anymore, I guess. Wow. But uh, all this is happening. We do see Unmasked. Joanna Wellick. Unmasked, even. We do see Joanna Wellick on a magazine cover in this scene. We follow this FBI agent into the FBI offices, and she's meeting with Gideon Goddard. Not good, Josh. Not great for Gideon. I mean, not the worst thing. Not great for Elliot. I mean, (laughs) is this Gideon coming clean? Is this his come-to-Jesus moment? Yeah, who knows? It very well could be. I mean, we really ought to think about that. I mean, Gideon's not going to make it out if you're alive, but it's entirely possible that he is dead only after already tipping his hand. Uh, That's entirely possible. This character is called called Dom Di Piero. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, very Italian. I, very Italian. I suppose, you know, I assume that we're going to find out a lot more about her other than the fact that she likes lollipops and turkey sandwiches and works for the FBI. Uh, as you said, Grace Gummer is the name of the actor. She is a series regular, so I assume that she is going to be a big part of season two. Just a quick introduction of this character so far. Yeah, we're not, we don't get any more in this episode, but I think the, the mounting kind of FBI pressure about the 5-9 hack is building. Gideon is a part of that we don't know what is said in that scene that would probably be the last time Gideon met with the FBI so whether or not that loose end had a chance to really become afraid loose end we don't know Uh, but that's a problem Uh, we do get into the next scene Elliot kind of talking with Ray uh, at the at the basketball game this is the kind of introduction that's the dog person we've talked about that a lot but he gets into kind of Craig Robinson gets into kind of perceiving reality the guys playing basketball they want you to see badasses uh um, maybe, Joey badasses. Yes, uh, my dog thinks they're just dumb animals. I think they're just putting in a lot of care and effort over a shitty game. What's the truth? Maybe the truth doesn't exist, and what we think is we're all good. I'm jealous of my dog because all she does is give a shit about is eating and sleeping. That sounds to me like Elliot's little loop, uh, and we don't really know. Ray clearly knows more about Elliot than Elliot does. He knows he likes computers. He knows his name. Uh, more to come on this storyline for sure, uh, but this is kind of the introduction to another new character here, which is Ray played by Craig Robinson. Uh, And so that's all going on. Uh, So chickens are coming home to roost. We still, Josh, we still haven't seen 
uh, Angela. And that is, I think, the big kind of thing that is that is floating around out here. That is, yeah, that's coming right up. One quick thing, you know, just as we're talking about the Elliot storyline, both on face value and if there's something bubbling beneath the surface, I think even if we were to take it at face value, I think a lot of people are wondering, is this Leon guy real? Is, yeah. Le- is Leon a real person or is this another figment of Elliot's imagination? Um, you know, he has this moment where he confronts the basketballer and Ray comes in and he, like, clarifies things. He, you know, he busts up the fight. And then Leon just walks away. Could that be viewed in the same way as, you know, some of those scenes where Mr. Robot would get in front of Elliot and have a conversation? Is the framing the same way? So I think that a lot of people are wondering, is Leon somebody who isn't really there? I think that all of the theories that we've talked about so far allow for that possibility. If, If it's some sort of incarceration, some sort of imprisonment, if he's in an institution, Elliot, um, this could be a fellow inmate. Or it could also be somebody that Elliot is imagining as a as sort of a you know a, a, a good friend you know somebody who's actually in his corner here if a little bit verbose for Elliot's liking um, or if Elliot is out here in the world he could be a real guy or he could be an imaginary friend there as well so Leon's a guy to track for sure Joey Badass playing that character gotta imagine something bigish will happen with that character yeah Tom Palmer forward. had had contacted us and said do you think any of the new characters are just in Elliot's head this is is a show that has established that everybody in Elliot's world right now is suspect until proven otherwise. I think that's exactly right. I think that's where the kind of the axe falls on that. I think you could foresee a scenario where Elliot has been eating all those meals on his own, where Elliot is watching Seinfeld and where those very kind of existential thoughts about what is real and what isn't real and is there any point to any of it are Elliot's thoughts. I think that's all very possible. Uh, I think Joey Badass is doing a great job. I think Craig Robinson is doing a great job. These are all characters that I, I look forward to seeing more of for sure. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. All right, so moving on from this, shall we talk about Angela? Yeah, Angela or Joanna, up to you. Which one we go to next? Let's because... let's let's go. Let's talk through the Angela stuff really quickly. Okay, first. all right, let's do it. Let's so talk... let me let me start that actually. Though. Let me start this all, Josh, and I think this is a good way to sum it all up, and we can really kind of break it all down. Um, we had a really good question that was emailed into us from a user named Dominic or a listener named Dominic, and Dominic said, "Hey guys, are we looking at Angela becoming a season two villain? Ooh. She does not seem to give an f society what anyone thinks anymore." Josh, with the Angela scenes in this episode, both her being very good at her job and her positive affirmations there and her being very dark about her role and taking on the f society or the evil corp of it all is angela being built up to be a season two villain all right so let's just talk through what angela is up to in this scene angela is working in pr uh she's working in publicity she's negotiating a high level interview with high level media outlets they want to ask about scott knowles burning 5.9 million dollars obviously um you know obviously that's going to be a question on the docket she's trying to remove that question she's trying to remove all questions about the suicide that occurred on television at the end of season one all of that she wants off the table she is doing some very very tough negotiations 
location. Her coworkers think that she is a weirdo and that she is cold and is about to get fired in the very final second. I think that she, it's Bloomberg, that not the mayor, uh, that she is able to book the uh, interview with and all of the conditions are met. Very impressive stuff for somebody who I don't believe has much PR experience here in Angela, but she's obviously proven that she's got a little bit of an aptitude for it. Uh, we see her firing basically the lawyer that she worked with throughout season one. She has a, you know, the lawyer before she leaves has this great joke about, um, or this great story about a uh, man walks to a bar and asks this girl to sleep with her, uh, to sleep with him and uh, offers a million dollars. And she's like, Oh, maybe I should think about it. It's like, then offers one dollar. Well, you've already named your price. Now we're just negotiating. That's a whole big moment. And I think that that would speak to the idea that maybe Angela really has gone to the dark side here at E Corp. But then you get to the final scene of Angela's in the episode where she is in the apartment. She has gone home with a guy immediately rando. after that rando. story. Yeah. That's so great. Uh, yeah, she, sure. She has, you know, it's just a funny button on that, on that scene. But well, she, it's the, the, yeah, the button is that, yeah, is that the attorney has given the old Winston Churchill joke about, you know, negotiating for a price. And, right. Uh, and here Angela just, yeah, no, no problem. You nope. Know, Little hookup, but a little bit of a problem because she wakes up and what, what does she go do? She goes and watches some affirmations on TV. She is obviously, you know, trying to be good with herself or whatever it is that's going on with her. But she has affirmations that she is supposed to repeat out loud. The affirmations are, my confidence is powerful. I recognize myself as exceptional. I will follow my dreams no matter what. No matter what. what. No yeah. matter what. Yeah. We know that throughout season one, Angela was gunning for E Corp. Uh, that was her journey. She was working with this attorney to take down E Corp, to use Terry Colby, and to have him testify about all sorts of stuff. She was trying to dismantle E Corp through legal means, uh, as opposed to Elliot's journey of how he was trying to take out E Corp. Then she is offered a job at E Corp at the end of the season through Terry Colby basically advising her, if you want to take this system apart, maybe you should try doing it from inside. So that was a possibility that was floated out out there. Now we see her in season two being very, very good at her job, defending E-Corp very, very seriously. But when did we hear about confidence in this episode earlier? You know, we heard Philip Price talk about how you can't have a con without the confidence. Is Angela conning her way through E-Corp? Is she trying to be exceptional at this job so that she follows her dreams of dismantling E-Corp no matter what? Yeah, it's a good question because Angela's real journey started before the E-Corp of it all. She was at All Safe. She was trying to establish herself. She wanted to stand on her own two feet. The Terry Colby hack that Elliot perpetrated ultimately via this test from Mr. Robot made Angela look really bad, exposed her, got her kicked out of the meeting, got her essentially demoted, made her very upset, set her on this path that ultimately ends with these affirmations, that ends with her kind of trying to self-affirm. And again, that same toxic sludge incident, if you will, from which Elliot and Darlene emerged also produced Angela. And we've talked about how Elliot and Angela are similarly or like two sides of the same coin, that they're a head and a tail, that they're different in terms of how they're approaching this. Elliot, 
wants to affect change on Evil Corp and society from the outside. Angela is trying to do this from the inside, at least nominally. As we see in this second season, she's going in with both feet. She's telling the attorney, I'm going to take this job. I'm good at it. And I think that goes back to what we knew about Angela from earlier in season one, that she needed the affirmation. She needed the success. She needed the success at all safe. She needed to be respected and stand on her own two feet at all safe. And she was good at a lot of what she was doing, but she was being put in tough spots in the case of the all safe hack by Elliot, by her best friend. So this was all very difficult. And then of course she was put in difficult spots by Ollie, her boyfriend. So Angela's not had an easy road. I think a lot of people, if there's any frustration with the show, the frustration comes from this character arc, but I think it's really fascinating to see where she's at right now. And I do think there are major question marks is, and I think Dominic kind of asks about it. Will she be a villain uh, or is she really trying to affect negative change at Evil Corp? Take them down, if you will, by getting to a big position of power. We already see how her coworkers are kind of jealous of her. They want to get her in trouble. They think she's not doing a good job, even though she is good at her job. So I guess the, the jury is out. One thing I will say, Angela has QWERTY, Josh. Angela does have QWERTY. Yes. QWERTY so the that- fish. I do think that that speaks to some level of Elliot either choosing to remove himself and making plans uh, or Elliot being removed on some level and his friends kind of trying to take care of his life. But Cordy, uh, Angela is keeping Cordy alive. That's a direct link to Elliot. That's the last thing we see in an Angela scene in this episode is Cordy. So I think that there's some part of Angela that is still tied to Elliot in a positive way. And so even the darker she gets, I think there's a chance for redemption for her. I feel like Angela is up to something. Thing. Um, I will I will plant my flag in that territory right now that I don't think that this is Angela submerging into, you know, really drinking the E-Corp Kool-Aid. I think that Angela is up to something. I think that we are going to see Angela make some kind of proactive move against E-Corp from within E-Corp, and we are on that journey right now. And, yeah. I, and I think that those, those affirmations are so key. My confidence is powerful. Calling back to Philip Price's words earlier in the episode. That you need you the con. You need the, you need the confidence to have the con. Yes. Um, and that's a I, good point. And I recognize myself as exceptional. She's obviously exceptional at what she is doing right now. Uh, I will follow my dreams no matter what. And her dreams were to avenge her mother's death, to take out E-Corp. We could very easily see Angela hacking her way into E-Corp, not, you know, through a computer, but through her own skills, through her own abilities to be charming and refreshing, as Philip Price referred to her back in season one. I think that Angela is not going to be a big bad this season. I think that she could go for a dark journey, but I think that ultimately she is still on that same mission that she's been on all along. Yeah, and I don't think she's been on it all along. That's the only difference. Is I think at the beginning, she was willing to work for a company that protected E-Corp. And I think she was willing to do that because she wanted personal affirmation. She wanted personal success. And she was a wage slave. That was ultimately what the portrayal was. She had these mountains sure. of student debt. And Elliot wanted to save people like Angela, who were good people that were forced to do things they didn't want to do I because think, they owed money. And I think that you know she says it to him in the season one premiere, like, don't save me. Let, right. me, let me fail or let me save 
myself. And I think that that's probably the start of the turn for her. Uh, you yes. know, she sees the whole Terry Colby news on TV a couple of episodes after that and then starts her journey toward actively trying to take E Corp down. I'm saying that she's still on that journey. I think yeah, that, that journey I, I, continues. I think that's true. And I think uh, Chris Eden had asked us, is she that gullible? Huge 180 for her doesn't seem natural or, 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 or organic. And I think we're reading that as, yeah, you're right. It doesn't seem, that's probably why. Maybe she's a little bit, maybe it's an undercover kind of thing. Maybe she's trying to ultimately affect change from the inside. She's playing it by ear, seeing what access she can get, waiting to make her move, affirming herself as she goes. I think you're really astute with that connection with the confidence and the con and the Philip Price scene. So I think there's a huge aspect of that. I think we see her being competent and really good at what she's doing. So she's going to have the ability to do this. I'm not sure if it puts her on a collision course with Darlene. I think people have speculated about that, that Darlene wants to take Evil Corp down from the outside. She and Darlene are friends. She wants to defend Evil Corp. She's being put in a position where she can't talk about the very incident that Darlene perpetrated with the $5.9 million. So there's an interesting parallel there. But I do hope that Angela is on a bright path, but she's on a dark road right now to get to the end of that bright path. So I guess we're just juries out. Remains to be seen. I do think the QWERTY connection is something that shows that at her baseline, at her core on some level, she is still connected to Elliot and they are still on the same page. All right. What's going on with Joanna Welk? Let's now talk about Joanna Welk, who is up to some old tricks. She is still doing, you know, some of the BDSM, Christian Grey, Anastasia Steele thing going on. But Tyrell Wellick is not in the picture. Obviously, she has a new boy toy that she is going through this with. Yeah, BDSM Wong. Yeah, that's what's going on. <laughs> uh, no, this you're it's right. Terrible. She's into this. The whole point of BDSM is that the person who's bonded actually has the control. They're the one who says, yes, no, don't do this, don't do that. So even though it seems like they're the ones that's out, that are out of control, they're ordering the person to do things to them or not do things to them. This guy's a dope. He's not very good at it. No, he's bad. Uh, yeah, he's really bad at it. He's ruining it. You're ruining it. Don't talk after. <laughs> yeah. like, don't tell me I want, you want to watch Vanderpump Rules. Like, you're really taking me out of this. Let me luxuriate in my bathtub but yeah joanna wellick the ice queen literally getting uh ice queen touch with an ice knife yes that's all happening uh we see she's still got the security that tyrell had from season one so this is apparently personal security they're still uh, loyal to the tyrell cause where they were asleep on the job when tyrell uh escaped and worked with elliot who knows but she's still working with them she is a public figure so she can't be seen kind of traipsing around doing these things uh she gets back to her house there's a little a mystery box wrapped upon her doorstep i'm boxes not sure within boxes it seems boxes within boxes i'm not sure why she's not being watched by the feds such that somebody else finds that box it's very interesting to me but she finds the box she opens the box boxes within boxes there's a music box inside the mystery box on the flip side of the music box there's a cellular telephone josh there is a cellular telephone and there will be a mystery call towards the end of the episode on that phone, we also know that Tyrell Wellick will appear on a phone by the end of the episode. Is Tyrell Wellick trying to phone home, much like E.T.? Is that what's happening here? Open question. I think that that is certainly what we're meant to think. Uh, Elliot, although Elliot places the call to Tyrell at the end of the episode, I think that's a key thing that we're about to get into here. Um, Elliot has lost some time. He's been talking to Ray. Uh, he doesn't remember meeting with Ray. That's the Mr. Robot of it all. Elliot is very concerned because he's realizing that while he sleeps at night, Mr. Robot is at play. He gets to do what he wants while, while Elliot is not controlling him. Uh, he has met with Ray at some point, whether or 
not that's to set them in motion uh, to killing uh, Gideon, we don't know. I think that that's or some other nefarious cause. We don't or know. Some other nefarious or, questions. We yeah. Or some sort of olive branch of like you know the Mister Robot side of Elliot being like, let's make some progress with Ray so that we can speed our way out of whatever trap we're in right now. Yeah, lots maybe. of possibilities. Like, I'm smarter than you. Let me get us out of this. Like we don't really know exactly what's happening, but yeah, something is happening, and and Elliot is not aware of it. This rattles Elliot a little bit, obviously. Uh, he gets back in kind of the room, and we have, Josh, one of Remy Malik's greatest scenes on Mr. Robot, the laughter, Josh, the laughter. It's incredible. It's, <laughs> it's really incredible. It's amazing. It's just Elliot howling and howling and howling with laughter when he's returned home and he sees that, you know, there's this time that's unaccounted for, and Mr. Robot basically says, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you recognize that when they see you, they see me. Yeah. Uh, I love this. This is great where he just has like the <laughs> you, know, you had just a like, great conversation with Remy Malik about this scene. Yes, absolutely. So I also cover Mr. Robot for The Hollywood Reporter. Many of you know that. Some of you do not. Uh, I will be covering the show all season long. I'll do interviews with cast members. Those will post after every episode on Wednesday nights. The first one up, I got to speak with Elliot himself, with Rami Malik, and I asked him about this scene. Um, and he, he gave a really interesting explanation for it, I thought, that I think provides some really strong context to why Elliot is cracking up so much. Is it Elliot losing his mind? Is this just the break? Is this just him going even further, further down into madness? Or is there something more? So I asked, uh, I asked Rami what he remembers about shooting the laughing scene, and this is what he said. There was a moment in that scene where Sam, meaning Sam Esmail, the creator of the show, Sam and I talked, and it was this acknowledgement that in saying what Mr. Robot was saying, that it felt like the bravado of it lended itself to feeling as though he was just kind of manufacturing that phrase. I'm going to show you that when they see you, they see me. There's just this bravado that felt really false. And in that one moment, Elliot could see that. He saw a vulnerability in that. I think there's this really great relief in discovering that. Elliot, being the David to Mr. Robot's Goliath, saw this as a weakness and that he could be brought down. There's a kind of euphoric mania that we had talked about having in that moment. What's great about having Sam direct the episode is it could have gone in a very terrible direction in the hands of someone else, but because Sam knows her characters so well and we work so well together, we could really modulate that into a moment that felt real and honest and have a sense of relief and have Elliot feel like it could be a precursor to taking that guy down. So the reason that Elliot is laughing in this moment, at least as far as the interpretation of Sam Esmail and Rami Malek, is that Elliot hears that phrase from Mr. Robot, I'm going to make them, I'm going to make you realize that when they see you, they see me as just Mr. Robot puffing up his chest and trying to fire another bullet into Elliot's head without actually having to pull the trigger. Uh, and Elliot recognizing that and realizing you are not as in control as you think. You might be able to control my sleeping hours, but I'm in control of so much more. I think that speaks a lot to your theory, Antonio, that Elliot, despite the fact that we're talking about the possibility that maybe he is in more of an illusory situation than it appears at first glance, might have some mastery over that situation a little bit and might be, you know, control is an illusion, but he might be in more control of that illusion than some people are giving him credit for. 
Yeah, and he does a great job uh, kind of playing that out. It's also great reactions from Christian Slater in this scene, kind of a full arc from Mr. Robot in this episode, where he's aggressive, and then he's angrier, uh, and then he really kind of literally pulls the gun out. He's shooting Elliot in the head, and by the end of this, he's saying, like, hey, I win. I can do things when you're not around, and Elliot is saying in his voiceover, this is why I'm different. Sometimes my mask takes over, but then when he drops that line, Elliot says, oh, wait a minute, I'm in control, steps up into the gun, right. says, keep shooting me until you tell me where Tyrell is. The only one that's going to drive crazy is you. That's the only person that's going to be upset about this happening over and over again. He does take control. Christian Slater as Mr. Robot looks very rattled by the end of this scene. There's a great role reversal. I think that this is all a really cool path in this first episode in microcosm of the relationship between Elliot and Mr. Robot as it it stands now. Uh, Mr. Robot seems to be in control. Elliot's trying to get rid of them. Hit rid of him. And by the end of the episode, even though Mr. Robot has found an opening, Elliot has found one as well. And you're right. What does that ability for Elliot to find control mean? Where is he finding that in other aspects of his life? Uh, But what is happening when he's not in control? Did Mr. Robot arrange something without him knowing it? And by the way, Elliot still hasn't unlocked the big secret, which is where is Tyrell Wellick? Although by the end of the episode, he does seem to know a number to call. Right. Exactly. You know, by the end of the episode, he's going to be on the phone with Tyrell, assuming that's not just him picking up a phone and hearing a voice in his head. Well, that's true, because what he says, this is a great moment. He ends the scene with Christian Slater here by saying, I'm late for my church group. Peace. Peace. Yeah, and he walks out. <laughs> this is fantastic. Yeah. He goes to his church group. He gets into this Book of Revelation stuff, which is, of course, a lot of different interpretations about this book. Some say post-apocalyptic. Some say futuristic. Some say past or current, present. Uh, there's a lot of different interpretations of this. one of the very poetic books of the Bible. But we hear this speech about the Alpha and the Omega, which is a very Christ-like kind of thing. But they say, I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And that does mimic the, I was only only supposed to be your prophet you were supposed to be my god that mr robot says to elliot in the season one finale yeah that's exactly right that's the relationship between elliot and mr robot somewhere in hearing this elliot drifts off and when he comes to a he's holding the red phone in his mom's house in his hand it is ringing someone picks it up they sound like they're in another place in time it is not penny's boat uh and what is happening on the other end of that is barnsois elliot it's tyrell wellick right so does elliot know where tyrell is and it's Mr. Robot providing a concession here of like, all right, fine, here's Tyrell, let's get back on board. If that's the case, why wasn't Elliot able to pull that out of himself earlier without, you know, as much effort as it clearly took to get this information? Is it possible that Elliot slash Mr. Robot and Tyrell had some sort of agreement of like, don't tell me where you're going? Um, does Did Mr. Robot not know where he is? Is he actually talking to Tyrell here? Is Tyrell dead? Is he seeing or hearing dead? people so many questions about this we are no closer to the truth on the tyrell thing other than obviously it's a pressing issue at the moment and i'd be shocked if the next episode didn't give us a good amount more of tyrell yeah, I agree. And Elliot's the one making the outbound call. Joanna's the one that misses the inbound call. Uh, so what's the relationship there with calls bouncing around? If that is Tyrell or did Elliot call Joanna? Like, we still don't have any resolution on what their relationship might be. So more to come there. Great, interesting way to end the episode on that note. For sure, we began with Elliot and Wellick. We end with Elliot and Wellick. We ended season one, episode one, with Wellick saying to Elliot... Both 
Bonsoir, Elliot. Yes. We end season two, episode one, with Wellick saying to Elliot. Bonsoir, Elliot. Yes. So here we are again, back in this infinite loop, this perfect little loop, where these characters are still kind of interacting with each other, even though things have happened, even though time has passed. Wellick is laughing it off. I love the sound mix in this this kind of phone call with Wellick, because he really does sound like he could be anywhere in the world or any time in the world. And I think that that's awesome. I think that that's all great. We needed this ending, Josh, because what happened right before that was the Gideon Goddard what scene. What are you talking about? That's the, We've talked about every single thing that happens in the episode. There's nothing more to cover. We're done. All right. I'm late for my church group. Peace. <laughs> Peace. Yeah. No, no. We should talk about the death of Gideon Goddard, which is very, 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 very deeply depressing. Yeah, I think that's the the one main thing left here. Uh, one of our listeners, uh, Kelsey, had observed that this show seems to have some bad timing uh, because last season they had people uh, killed live on air, uh, unfortunately, with the tragedy that was happening just as they had a character kill himself live on air. Now we have a character being shot and killed uh, in what I think is a gay bar uh, just le- less than a month after the horrible tragedies in Orlando. This is a show that occupies a space in the zeitgeist where things are going to happen for every terrorist attack that happens in the show there's one happening in society this is a show that's that firmly plants itself in the dark zeitgeist of today's times i think rami malik said to you if if this show is post-apocalyptic then maybe we should look around yeah maybe we're closer to the apocalypse than we realize yeah so Uh, there's all those things are are certainly on point with that and yet this scene is not about any of that it's about the the very specific death of one character gideon goddard the death of goodard the death of goodness i'm winning the death draft josh you are winning the death i'm so draft. mad though that i won. i'm so you sad. are winning the death draft that's very sad i wish you weren't for so many reasons because that is a great great character who we've lost in a really horrible way um obviously no way that the show could have known the horrible horrible thing that was going to happen in orlando you know this was shot months ago um and you know the orlando tragedy is in june early june there's just no way but it's just it is just this really kind of freaky, horrible, terrifying, scary, depressing, morbid coincidence. And I, I felt really chilled watching it happen. You know, Not just to a character that you really, really love, but because it was evocative of recent real-life events was really, really frightening. But the scene itself is really scary and I think does speak to the new world order that has been established on this show where people are running through the streets wearing Monopoly Man masks and screaming and causing chaos and all of this. And, you know, a big, gigantic conglomerate like E-Corp is withholding money um, from these people. And and executives from that company are burning $5.9 million money piles in the middle of New York City with the Freedom Tower, you know, blaring in the background and Phil Collins soaring. You know, there's it's a scary, scary world that's happening here. And this is a world also not unlike our own unfortunately right now where people go out for a drink and get shot and killed Um, and it's and it's happening to a really beloved character here in Gideon who has been sort of I don't know if I would call him the moral compass of the show but is somebody who has been identified multiple times in the narrative as someone who's on the level as somebody who looks after his people looks after his company is a good guy when Elliot hacks him recognizes that Gideon doesn't have bugs in the traditional sense you know he is a good decent human and this is a person who's getting killed as a result of the war that Elliot whether he knew it or not was putting into action this death lands squarely on elliot alderson's shoulders 
It absolutely does. Whether or, not he, whether or not he calls the hit, there's some question about did F Society arrange for this to happen to protect Elliot? There's, I, I don't know how, how much I buy into that or if this was really just this is the world that has been created by the 5-9 hack. That there are some people who are so freaked out and so messed up by what has happened that they'll go try to be a hero by killing somebody who is – you know, recognizably identified as somebody close to the F Society hack. Um, I think that that seems more plausible to me and more true to the world. But either way, the fact that this hack happened at all, um, that F Society existed at all, that's all through Elliot. And that is exactly what gets Gideon killed here. So Elliot ultimately now is responsible for Gideon's death, and that's a horrible thing. Yep, Elliot has to own this directly or indirectly. There was the Tom Tamillo question about whether Elliot used Ray in that secret meeting that they had to kind of orchestrate this uh, with F with F Society or whether or not this is just something that happened. I'm leaning toward the latter. The latter is the guy, it seems like a pickup. He, he thinks he's saying, what happened to your husband? You're not married. When did he leave you? And the guy is basically saying, like, I'm a diehard fan. It's on your face. They use you as their patsy because you give off a sympathetic, honest vibe. You are the perfect vessel for their lies. Uh, and then this guy clearly is a conspiracy theorist. He uses a sort of trigger alert word. He calls him a crisis actor, which is something people on the, the kind of weird internet or the, the really dark corners of the internet who believe that all of these kind of tragedies are staged so that the government or other actors can take advantage of them, believe that people are hired to do things like cry and Sandy Hook. Uh, and he's calling Gideon a crisis actor, somebody who is an actor in the midst of this crisis. He kills them. He kills him for that reason. He doesn't say anything else about F society or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. He, he seems to kill him because he thinks he's wrapped up in the hack. And, and he, the, Elliot has essentially touched a person who was already touched by setting the five, nine hack in motion. This is the kind of crazy that gets set off in the world. And this is all on Elliot ultimately directly. And whether or not all the stuff at all save Elliot's carrying that around, he's going to have to carry this around if he finds out about it, because this person was set off by the five, nine hacks and what they did when they saw the opportunity and whether you want to call it a Gavrilo Princeps kind of coincidence where he just happened to have a gun and see somebody that he wanted to kill. Uh, and this is a world war one kind of touch off, uh, or whether you want to say that this guy was there because somebody told him to be there. Gideon is dead. Elliot's either directly or indirectly responsible. A terrible thing, Josh. I'm so sad I won the death draft. It's horrible. It's horrible. Gideon was a great character, great performance by Michael Gill, who played that character a lot more effectively than he led the nation on a different show, I yes. would say. The House of Cards. This is a, there's so many House of Cards It's crossovers. come crashing down. Yes, it has come crashing down. It's blown over. Goodbye, House of Cards. It really sucks. I loved this character. I thought Gideon was great. It's going to recolor a lot of those scenes in the first season. Like, his scene, like, eating breakfast in bed with his husband. That's so yep. sad now. Yeah. I wonder, like, will we see Gideon's husband? You know, I mean, they're estranged. Right, you know, that's what Gideon says right before he's killed. Will we see, you know, it's something that, you know, not to go too far into spoilers on House of Cards, but that's something that House of Cards, I feel like, does a lot where, like, a character falls and then someone picks up the torch. Uh, could we see Gideon's husband picking up a torch for Gideon and having a little bit more of a role? I would love that. I would love it if the, you know, sort of the ghost of Gideon continued to haunt this show, that he didn't just die in vain, that he wasn't just brutally killed as blowback for what Elliot has done here with the F Society hack. 
I could see that being the case, that this is just like a very, very, very tragic, traumatic way of reinforcing that there are people who fall on both sides of the line. And it's not just the bad guys who are going to get destroyed by F society's actions here. Um, I yeah, just, I, I think this is, I mean, looking at the five, nine hack is chemotherapy. Like, yeah. This is going to do damage to the body. It may even kill the body before it cures it of its illness. And it's a very destructive thing yeah. that has happened And that destruction. A lot of people are filling in gaps. A lot of people are bringing their own agenda to that destruction and not all of it is good. A lot of it is bad and it's going to have some very negative blowback. Society is going to get to a much darker place. F society. F society wanted that to happen yeah. ostensibly, but I'm not sure they ever really took a step back and thought about it. And this is where your Mr. Robot as an agent of anarchy and chaos really comes into play. He probably didn't care. He probably didn't care. And Gideon wouldn't have been as much in the crosshairs if it wasn't for Elliot taking a sort of folly from the original plan and deciding to pin it all on Terry Colby. Uh, that's what ultimately aroused Gideon's suspicion. That's what made Gideon more of a loose end. And that's what made Gideon and ultimately more of somebody that was on the FBI's radar as a suspect. And that is ultimately what made him kind of in the public eye and killed him. So this, again, this is all Elliot's behavior. It's very difficult. It's very dark. Uh, and like I said, this show is dwelling in a place and it occupies the kind of a spot in the zeitgeist and it is symbiotic with that such that these dark things are going to continue to happen. Yeah. Justin from Reno emailed and said, after watching Hacking Robot, I'm starting to think the producers are the ones responsible for the real world hacks <laughs> oh, so closely related to the show. Yeah. Justin, stay out of the robot hole. Come yes, on, buddy. Yeah, that's too yeah. far down the robot hole. Too, but, far, too far up the robot hole. But it, but it is uh, but it is it is freaky. It's definitely, yeah. it's definitely freaky and that's one of the exhilarating things about this show um i don't even know if that's the right word it's it's a it's a very it's a very moving show it's a show that uh touches a lot of emotions yes and it's you know it's it's very interactive um you know not just because there's obviously as we've discussed at length at this point you know we're past two hours now uh but it's a it's a it's a show that produces a lot of theories a lot of discussion points a lot of possibilities within the story very rich characters but it's also talking about subject matter that is very much on the mind of the world right now and so you're going to see a lot of that stuff leaking in which can be both really exciting and also really frightening and also deeply 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 disturbing and depressing um so that's yeah. the dark note to end well, this that's, that's great um <laughs> wait for my church group josh peace peace all right yeah. so that's 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 basically it unless you have anything else from this episode that you want to talk about here antonia no, I think that, I mean, I think the larger thing is we, you know, you get into the ray of it all, you get into everything that's happening with Elliot, I think the jury's still out. I think there's evidence either way, whether he's using the dog as a way in for Elliot, whether the fact that Elliot doesn't have Flipper anymore because he's there because of the thing with Flipper, I think we just have to put a pin in all that stuff. The show is giving us a lot of clues, worth a rewatch if you haven't rewatched it. Hopefully this podcast unpacked a lot that you didn't see this first time around, but this is a show that throughout the season... I I think the more we view it, the more we talk about it, the more that we're engaging with this show, the more the show's going to reward us with the things that are happening, the daemons, if you will, the little unconscious processes or systems that are going on in the background that do represent something once we draw all the connections together. So again, would love people to, to give us feedback, subscribe. Uh, can you remind people again how to do all that, Josh? Yeah, you can subscribe to us at postshowrecaps.com slash mrrobotitunes. That's postshowrecaps.com slash Mr. Robot, iTunes, 
all of your subscriptions for that would be great. We appreciate ratings, reviews, anything you can give us. Uh, and to get questions our way, that's posterrecaps.com slash feedback is the best way to do that. You can also float questions our way on Twitter. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro, two Zs, one R. I'm at Round Howard. Do we have a hashtag for this episode, Antonio? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. We talked about, what, the trailer trickery gets pollocked, you said, at one point. That works. Uh, did you have anything else? We had hashtag Wellyet at one point. Wellyet, I think is yeah, good. You so can tell us. You can tell us if we're doing hashtag Wellyet here on the podcast or not. I mean, if it's not, if it's not your thing. You can tell us that too. Uh, yeah. But we will be back every single week talking about a different episode here of season two of Mr. Robot as the season is progressing. Again, getting those out to you by Thursdays or Friday mornings at latest. Anything else, Antonio? No, that's it. And if we get enough feedback, we're not opposed to a feedback show at some point. If there's a really crazy episode or something that pops up, we could do an emergency feedback podcast. This one's already super long, so any more feedback, we wouldn't have been able to do any more on this podcast. They won't all be this long. This was an extra long, uh, extra-packed episode. episode. Yeah. Yeah, so we had to bring it in. But normally, if there's a ton of feedback, we really want to get into it. We're not opposed to it. So send your feedback along for sure, uh, and we'll, we'll definitely either address it on the main podcast or if there's enough, we could do a second podcast. It just depends on what the show's bringing us from a week-to-week standpoint. All right, sounds good. All right, AC Mobley, I'll talk to you next week. Cheers. I got, I'm late from my church group. That's all right, peace. Peace.